You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Cast, your ultimate answer to fandom, geekiness, and everything. As always, I am your host, Nathan, and we have another great episode for you where we're going to talk about my favorite doctor, the third doctor. Uh, but before we do that, let's meet our cast for this week. And so starting off, he is a guy that I've known for whew, over 20 years now, I think at this point. Uh, he is um, a historian, and he is a farmer, and that is my friend Eric. How are you doing, Eric? Hey, Nathan. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Hey, no problem. So uh, any uh, any movements from Chessie that I should know about since the last uh, time? Well, yeah, I'm still working on my manuscript, but I'm, I'm in the middle of a heavy farm season, so it all gets put aside till I get done with that. So hopefully I'll get back to it over Christmas. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, what, what else has been going on for you? Anything? Anything new and exciting? <laughs> no, it's never new and exciting. To me, you know that. <laughs> well then. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, then I guess we'll just let Zygons be Zygons. Uh, it's good to have you on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me again. <laughs> no problem. All right, so next up, he is the guy that sounds like he's from the Satellite of Love, but looks like he's uh, from the Hunger Games, and that is my buddy Mike. How are you doing, Mike? I'm doing good, man. How about you? I'm doing all right. So uh, what's been going on for you? Oh, uh, I caught the red eye from London. Uh, no. <laughs> Robbie is uh, – we call him Robbie on set. Uh, <laughs> no, he's, uh, he's still training. He, he gained a little weight. And that's going to happen because of COVID, but he's, he's testing positive, testing negative, luckily. And, you know, he's just working out, trying to get back into tip top shape. And so he can come back onto the set and get back to filming Batman. You know, Mike, the fact that you come prepared every time that I do this to you, it just makes it like more and more funny each time. It's great. <laughs> Yeah. So for anyone who doesn't know the joke, even though I've explained it like a million times now, uh, his name is Mike Nelson, which sounds like the guy from Mystery Science Theater, but he looks just like Jeffrey Wright. So that's that's always our jokes. I'm in Batman. Um, that's right. <laughs> um, I'm that guy from Hunger Games. Yeah, yeah. Um, Beatty. Beatty, yeah. It's not just that guy from Hunger Games. It's Beatty. Come on. You should know your roles. You know, it was so long ago, and they all just kind of – melding together but he has a place in my heart because i had to spend six months learning how to use a wheelchair yeah <laughs> uh, so did you ever did you ever build some bots no i haven't <laughs> i'm yeah, having, I'm having trouble things. letting my you girlfriend keep, let me get a computer in here you shouldn't say things on podcasts that you're not willing to follow through on because it's saved forever man oh no 
I, I definitely want to. And she's more crafty than I am, so I think we're going to put our minds together and get it done. Okay. No, no it never awesome. skips my mind to get those bots made. Well, because you've already got, like, the green screen and everything. So, I mean, like, you could totally, like, like put yourself in Mystery Science Theater. Probably should. I should definitely capitalize on that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Mike, it is great having you back on the show. Ah, it's good to be back, brother. All right. Um, and next up, he is the guy that adds a touch of class to the show. Uh, he is another historian, and um, he is a guy that really loves Doctor Who, and that is Anthony. How are you doing, Anthony? I am doing good, thank you. It's good to be back on the show. Uh, so uh, what's new and exciting for you? Um, I mean, it's... When is it? It's October 2020. I've barely left the house in nearly seven months at this point. So I got to say, nothing much. Uh, you know, this lack of general lack of movement is uh, is causing some lower back problems. Uh, so I guess that's new, right? Yeah, it's new. It's not exciting. <laughs> yeah, I wish I had something exciting. I don't. You know, just podcasting and all that good stuff. You must be watching something in season five by now. We are. So, um... If, if this is the first time you're listening to the, to this show, I do another show called Watchers in the Fourth Dimension, where we are watching our way through all of Doctor Who in order from the beginning to now. Uh, we have just put out, at the time we are recording this, our recap episode of season four, but we always uh, are a few episodes ahead in what we've recorded. Um, we have just finished The Ice Warriors, and yesterday I started watching The Enemy of the World. Hmm. Now, see, that's pretty exciting. That is exciting. I, I mean, you know, returning to what was once a lost gem. Yeah. The last time I watched my way through all of Doctor Who in order, that one was actually missing. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, it's pretty cool this time to be able to actually watch that one. Well, funnily enough, I just watched it myself. Um, and, Isn't it uh, great? Oh, it's the best. Uh, but it, there is actually a John Pertwee connection here because on the Patrick Troughton years videotape, uh, whenever I introduce this this story to anybody, I always do it the way that Pertwee does on that tape, where he says, it's episode three of The Enemy of the World. <laughs> so there you go. And it was, of course, directed by Barry Letts, who mm -hmm. I'm sure will get more than one mention tonight. Yeah, it's funny, Eric. I never saw the Trout and Years tape, so um, I didn't even know about that. So, Oh, gosh. It, what an enthralling thing for a young fan at mm -hmm. the time. Yeah, I got to see all the missing episodes through. Well, there were the ones that were given their own VHS release, like uh, The Crusade, which was bundled with uh, Space Museum. But I saw them all through Reconstructions when they would just bundle the existing episode with the Reconstructions. So it wasn't until like late 90s, early 2000s that I saw a lot of the missing episodes. So, yeah. All right. Well, um, so Anthony, I, I commiserate, but at least you're, you have some good entertainment. Exactly. So that makes everything a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's funny because you called it a lost gem, but really before we actually saw it, we all thought it was kind of a stinker and then we saw it and then it was really good. <laughs> yeah. And th there are some stories like that that I'm convinced that if they were found, they would probably be lost gems. Mm. Um, Space pirates. <laughs> <laughs> So when when we so, so I realize I'm sidetracking here, but when we did yeah. the smugglers, we mm -hmm. hated it. Mm. But I think I have a sneaking feeling that uh, that one might actually be really good if we could actually see it. Yeah, 
There's a oh. lot like that. I mean, my, my estimation of Galaxy 4 increased a lot just from the episode we have, that there was a lot of visual stuff going on that I had no idea from the, the audio. Um, yeah. So I would also uh, like to uh, say that Faria from Enemy of the World is one of the great lost non-companions that should have been. Wouldn't no. it, yes. Instead of killing her off, she should have gotten on the TARDIS and flown away with them. Yeah, no, that was a great incredible. But, but yeah, but but I'm I'm sorry because I invoked it, but uh, <laughs> we did have fault. to move along, or we're never going to get to Birdway. So, uh, but yes, Anthony, very good to have you back on the show. Thank you. Good to be back. Yeah. So next up is someone that I met through Chicago TARDIS. Uh, she is someone that uh, has a love of Doctor Who uh, equal to my own, and that <laughs> is Miranda. How are you doing, Miranda? Hi, I'm doing good, as well as can be expected in the current world that we're living in, but yeah. we have Doctor Who to get us through, so. <laughs> That's true. Um, so, yeah, um, in, in the previous episodes that we've done, because we talked about Hartnell and Troughton, we talked about, uh, you know, like how we came to watch Doctor Who, you know, how we became fans, everything. So I was just curious, what is your story? Um, well, my mom was a Doctor Who fan back in back in the days of Classic Who, and um you know, during my childhood, it wasn't on, but then when the revival came on, it it uh, I I just I started watching because I had friends in England who were who were all talking about this show because it aired there a year before it did here. So I started watching that, and um, it was very different from the uh, um, few videotape reruns of Fourth and Fifth Doctor episodes that I remembered from my childhood, and and uh, <laughs> I I liked the new one better, and I got into it, and then after. Many years of watching New Who, I finally was like, well, gosh, there's so much more Doctor Who out there. So I went back and watched the classic series and fell in love with it. So, yeah, now here I am. Oh, okay. So, yeah, see, I didn't realize that you didn't really start watching the classic series until after the new series. Because I had, I remember you saying before uh, that, that your mother was a Doctor Who fan. So I just assumed, like, as a child, you were watching through Doctor Who and then the new series came. So that's interesting. Yeah, um, no, I, I didn't. Yeah, so... Okay. It's, it's interesting how it all came full circle, you know? <laughs> right. Well, no, and I, well, because we're going to get into this, but I mean, I know that you're a big fan of like the 60s and 70s stuff, which in my experience has not really yeah. been true of people who come to it from the new series. So uh, that's really fascinating. So I'm glad to hear it, though. <laughs> yeah. All right. I um, feel obligated to point out at this moment that if we've come full circle, someone should tell Dexter. <laughs> oh man all right it's funny being in a in a room with a bunch of other people who get these joe or a virtual room but <laughs> the things they always think but don't say out loud <laughs> but uh yeah so um anything else uh new and exciting has been going on for you miranda since the last time you were on no <laughs> okay <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Um, I do see your posts about wearing vintage outfits, though. So, you know, <laughs> I know you're having fun yeah, somehow. Well, keeping myself entertained. <laughs> right. Exactly. All right. Okay. So, yeah. Um, normally, we'd have our five-minute controversy here, but I think with as many people as we have on this one and as much stuff as we have to cover, uh, we're going to table that for this time. So, uh, right now, we're going to pause for a promo from another fine podcast, and then we will get on to talking about the Pertwee era. 
Do you like podcasts? Then you're going to hate Thunder Talk. Tasteless subject matter. Mature humor. Contempt for our co-hosts. Unapologetic social views. Edgy music. And total irreverence for the nerd junk we love. Are all reasons why no one. No one. No one should listen to Thunder Talk. Find us on the ESO Network. And all podcasting platforms. Or don't. Whatever. Welcome to Dr. Geek's Laboratory. Hello, everyone. Dr. Geek here with a shout out to all the scientists who worked tirelessly to bring a COVID-19 vaccine into reality. <laughs> Let's face it, creating something of this magnitude is a miracle worthy of Dr. McCoy himself. And now, Dr. Geek needs you to do your part. Remember, each shot is one small step back to normal, one giant leap to putting the pandemic behind us. We can do this. For more information, visit vaccines.gov to find your nearest provider. I mentioned at the top of the show, we are going to talk about the Pertwee era of Doctor Who. Um, it was the first era that went into color, although some of the stories only survived in black and white. We'll get back to that um, in a little bit. Um, but there were a lot of changes that happened behind the scenes. A lot of the format of the show changed. You know, the big one was that for the initial part of the series uh, or of these seasons, um, the doctor was not able to travel in time and space, and so he had to have an established base of operations, etc. So, you know, just on the face of it, not even talking about like the later Pertwee stuff when we when we finally get back into time and space. Uh, just kind of curious, how does everyone feel about you know the doctor being stranded on Earth and the sort of idea of that as as a concept of the show? All right, Mike, how about we start with you? Unit, how do you feel about Unit and, and the Doctor being stranded on Earth? I certainly liked that it felt grounded. You know, I mean, I mean, I know with uh, with the, the second Doctor, we didn't like tra travel. We traveled a lot, of course. Came to Earth a couple of times, but having the Doctor really as a repercussion, the Time Lords stranded him and uh, basically banned, uh, exiled him to Earth, and he had to stay there. It really grounded the show for me, and. Mm -hmm. Uh, the interaction with even because now we also we feel that we understand the doctor's love of humans even more because of Pertwee, because of his relationship with the unit and why he in his philosophy of no guns, no weapons, and how he can work together with the unit in that same regard. And I just love Pertwee and uh, uh the Brig Brigadier General, just they're back and forth, they're just a good duo. Yeah, um, Eric, what are your thoughts with Unit? Um, I've never been so uh, torn up over the moving away from the space and time side of things as people think I'm supposed to be. Um, I, you know, I love that late '60s aesthetic. Anyway, uh, I'm a big Avengers fan, and uh, so to me, combining Doctor Who with the Avengers is 
just, I mean, the highest form of art you could probably reach. Um, so to me, it, it strengthens the show immensely. I mean, I like that they go back off into time and space eventually, but, um, you know, doing, doing, uh, uh, you know, dark things happening on earth, I think was great. Um, and as you know, season seven is the height of the series for me. So, um, it really doesn't get much better than that. <laughs> well, you know, there's the famous Malcolm Hulk line of, okay, all you have is mad scientists and alien invasions. Do you think that that like limits the series at all? Um, I suppose it does, but I mean, I, you know, we've seen in the modern era where, uh, you know, a, a whole season of television or a whole couple seasons or a whole series like the X-Files can be uh, devoted to those kinds of running themes. Um, so I, I, I think to some extent, the only limitation there was Malcolm Hawke's imagination. Um, but, you know, to stretch out something like that over a whole series or whatever would require more character development, I think, than Doctor Who's really was used to, at least. Um, so, you know, you, were, you weren't going to get that sort of thing in 1970. Um, so I guess he was right in that respect. But, I mean, I, you know, this is going to take us beyond the question, but, and so I'll, I'll, I'll be brief, but I mean, the, the, if season seven is the height of the series, uh, really, especially season eight to me is, is a wrong turn, uh, even though it sort of preserves that framework, but I think that it really doesn't do a very good job with it. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but I, I can see where you're coming from on that one. I just always think about that's the season where we get Delgado, but <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm so excited for the master. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, I'm going to say controversial things about the master here. So, oh, you know, when, when we get to that. Are, are we going to be friends after this, Eric? <laughs> I, I, well, I mean, you know I love Delgado, but it's okay. it's more complicated than that. Okay. Um, so, uh, Miranda, how do you feel about the doctor being stranded on Earth? I I liked it. I mean, you know, as a format for the show to go entirely, of course, that wouldn't have been great. But I, I think for for the season, um, you know, where they where they had that, I, I think it worked tremendously. I mean, season seven is actually one of my favorite seasons of Doctor Who as well. I just I think it was just it was really smart, sophisticated, grown up science fiction, which I I love. And that initially was what um, Doctor Who was intended to be. I mean, it obviously it was for a family audience, but it was it was always intended to be, you know, somewhat, you know, serious sci-fi. And I and I love that they went in that direction. You know, that season certainly. Yeah, it's too bad that Barry Lett stepped in and said we can't have smart, sophisticated science fiction. <laughs> well, I'm going to be controversial about Barry Letts. You're, you're being you're being really <laughs> tough on Barry Letts there, but. <laughs> Well, I mean, he was the one that reversed a lot of what season seven was doing because he thought that things needed to go in a different direction. But, but yeah, we'll get into that, that a little bit. I, I was just putting in a singer. <laughs> All right, brother. So, uh, so yeah, I guess teeing up on that though, um, you know, we also get with the third doctor, I think sort of a push in a direction. And this is where we're going to talk more about, I think Barry Letts and Terrence Dix. Um, 
where Doctor Who had commented a little bit on, you know, like uh, current events and ecological themes and things like that, a little bit in the 60s. But in the 70s is when that starts coming, you know, a lot more to the fore. Um, and so uh, just thoughts on that of Doctor Who. Remember, this is a completely modern thing, right? You know, like Doctor Who didn't used to like get political at all. <laughs> um, you know that's what people say now, but uh, it's clearly not true in the in the in the Perch We era. So 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 yeah, just thoughts on on Doctor Who sort of tackling like you know topical issues and you know getting into like ecology and, and you know uh, you know the politics of the time with all the you know power outages and needing you know new power and stuff like that. Um, let's go with you this time, Eric. Well, I you know I like I like my Who when it gets uh, when it has an angle. I don't necessarily need it to be political. And I think that that's where modern who puts a foot wrong. Um, it, you know, the best doctor who leaves you wondering exactly what side doctor who would actually vote for. Um, you know, whereas I think modern who you're pretty clear on where doctor who's going to vote um, or what party he would support if he was in a, in a rally. Um, you know, and, and really I think that, Doctor Who should be, that is, the character should be uh, above that kind of thing. Um, you know, he should be a citizen of the universe and a gentleman to boot, as it were. Um, and and so I think that the Pertwee era does a pretty good job with that. Um, I, I, maybe sometimes it gets a little bit too close to um, advocating for uh, certain positions. I'm thinking particularly of the environmental stuff. Um, although it does it so well, who really cares? I'm going to disagree with that a little bit, but that's fine. Well, yeah, you finish up. Okay. <laughs> anyway, I mean, I, I think it's a good thing when Doctor Who has an angle. I just, I, I regret when Doctor Who starts being identifiable with a party or a particular position or something like that. Okay. Um, but you don't disagree that the like the Pertwee arrows, the you know, the show was definitely stepping into those. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think again, season seven does it better than the rest of the series does, at least in the sense that it, it you you know they're making commentary on things without actually saying you know this group is bad or this idea is bad. Um, mm -hmm. You know, in a in Inferno. Um, the world is going to end, but no one says it's because of evil people who are trying to find oil. You know, it's it's. Right. It, whereas, if you compare that with something like I don't know, Terror of the Zygons, which is a little bit out of our wheelhouse, but I had just happened to see it not long ago. You know, Tom Baker directly tells people, you know, um, it's about time you people. Uh, quit using you know, what pre pre prehistoric sludge or whatever he says to you know and I don't know that just seems a bit on the nose for me even though Terror of the Zygons is an amazing story too. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, so uh, Miranda, what are your thoughts about that? About Doctor Who sort of wading into politics? Um, I think Doctor Who has has always been inherently rather political. I mean, you know, it it was started back in the day by one of the first women producers and you know when their first director was an Asian man and in a time you know of lots of racism and sexism so I think that you know that kind of more liberal leaning was 
was always in the show. And, uh, you know, it's funny, Verity Lambert, the first producer, said that she kind of lost interest in it uh, when Pertree came in because it got to be too establishment. But I honestly don't agree with that. I think even though, yes, the, the characters on the show working, you know, within the military framework of UNIT was definitely more establishment. I mean, the doctor was always the anti-establishment outsider figure who would always argue when, you know, the brigadier wanted to just, you know, blow blow aliens up that no, like violence is, is bad and not the answer. We have to try talking and understanding. So I think, I think Doctor Who was always, always a more, a more liberal leaning progressive kind of, kind of show. So. Yeah. yeah I mean, we, we've talked on, uh, on panels at Chicago Tardis about like the sixties and how it was a, you know, kind of a progressive era in the, and during, well, the first couple of seasons, um, for sure. Um, but uh, I'm glad you brought up that quote from Verity Lambert because that's definitely something I want to revisit about the about the third doctor being an establishment figure because it annoys me every time I hear it. So I'm glad you brought that up. Um, <laughs> but for, first, uh, Mike, what do you think about uh, Doctor Who um, sort of stepping more overtly into a political theme? Uh, you know, and since you've been sort of watching these through as we've been doing the podcast, I think you've kind of might even have a better feel for that too um since you've been watching them sequentially oh i didn't see much political stuff until <laughs> the green death because the hippies the hippies are kind of very in my face about it <laughs> yeah, I remember you messaged me about the hippies and you were asking if you could skip the green death bro i was that green death so badly i was on that thing for like a week <laughs> <laughs> you like bite my teeth just trying to get through it. I have no problem with the hippies. It's just my god, that episode just ugh. Oh, Man, no you're more. harsh. <laughs> There's so many good things in that story though. Just, oh just, gosh. You know. <laughs> I mean, the Green Death is one of the masterpieces of Doctor Who. I just I, I, I can't do it again. I, I don't love it as much as some people do, but I do think there's a lot of good stuff. Um, I think Boss is great. I think uh, I think what they're doing with Mike Yates and how they play that up later also is great. I mean, yeah, there's, hopefully there's we get to talk really about Yates stuff. later. Yeah, well, we'll get there. We'll get there. But uh, okay, so you're saying you only noticed a political statement in the Green Death, or were you being sarcastic? No, that's basically it. That's like all I really see. I remember, uh, I remember the Curse of Pelobin when he was really being a that diplomat which Whoa. is also funny because i'm going through the new doctor who stuff with my girlfriend and we just watched uh the episode with matt smith negotiating with the uh, silurians so i was like i'm like oh yeah he was a very good diplomat and i remember the curse of power i'm like yeah he was a good diplomat <laughs> but yeah political wise like all i really saw remembering wise how he really took a stance was really in the green death uh the only little political thing I can see of is like fighting against a little bit of the establishment, which of course was unit and not really agreeing with how Brigadier, uh, the Brigadier General was trying to do all of his like, you know, shoot first, that questions later kind of a thing. It was basically his military duty. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, yeah, the brigadier I think is 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 not the figure. I mean, he's not. He's doing his duty. I think you got it right at the end. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, know, he's doing his duty. Yeah, he's he's protecting. He's doing the best he can with the knowledge that he has and with the the remit of protecting 
you know, his country, basically. And I get that a lot of, because we as the audience know more than he does, and the doctor knows more than he does. Sometimes his actions seem questionable, but if you think about it from his point of view, there are a lot of times where, you know, I have to just sit back and say, yeah, like for him, I don't think the Brigadier is ever coming from a position of just wanting to kill some aliens or anything like that. Like, he's... I, I don't I don't think that it's an, that we're supposed to see that in his character. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I think that the Pertwee era really uh, shows very directly, or or sh- uh, maybe I should say undermines uh, very openly the kind of modern progressive fantasy that Doctor Who is some kind of a pacifist as a character. Um, I mean, certainly. Uh, the first and second doctors were not pacifists, even though they certainly didn't like violence or whatever. But um, you know, there's this mythology now that you know Doctor Who doesn't kill people and doesn't doesn't uh, openly seek conflict and whatever. But uh, you know, in in the third Doctor era, the third Doctor is literally allied with the military. I mean, you don't get much more. Uh, un unpacifist than that, even though he bridles against it. I mean, and you know, and that's. But I don't think that that uh, takes away from the point I'm making. And and the larger point is that, you know, the doctor has never been a pacifist, and and always ends up having to encounter some kind of, or almost always, some kind of uh, militaristic or violent solution. Um, uh, the the other thing about uh, uh, the idea that uh, you know the the third Doctor era is a, uh, era is establishment that I think kind of misses the point a little bit is that Unit itself is a kind of subversive organization in the sense that uh, it is not a nationalist but in fact an internationalist um, organization and so there's a kind of implicit conflict that runs through that whole era of Lethbridge Stewart having to defend Unit from the bean counters back in Parliament, I guess, or London, um, and and really the the gradual diminishment of uh, Unit across the era until they finally just sort of disappear is a, sort of a metaphor for the the gradual pushing out of Unit out of out of England in a way, and so. Uh, it, the Brigadier is on some level a kind of a representation of a um, international viewpoint about things that is meant to counter the narrow-minded British Army view of things. Yeah, I, I will say the Brigadier was written much better in the beginning. And as the series wends on, like as the seasons wend on, they make him more and more of like uh like a stereotype rather than the character that he was in the beginning you know eric you and i have talked before you know you have a theory about the brigadier having a nervous breakdown about the time of the three doctors um because you know just how he like is depicted after that you know and and i've always liked that sort of interpretation because you know when you when you see him in spearhead from space 
he's he he's he's a man who's become enlightened from the encounters that he's had in the past with the you know with the yeti and with the cybermen and everything and unit is this organization that's going to investigate all these things that are going on and so he's very open-minded you know he's 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 literate in science although not being a scientist you know he understands like the concepts even if he doesn't understand like the details kind of thing and it seems like as we go on the brigadier becomes more of the stereotypical soldier of you know like oh this science rot you know like what is this you know like <laughs> becoming a little more like shoot first ask questions later which uh you know um I'm not sure why that is, but uh, I, I kind of like the idea about him having a nervous breakdown, at least kind of explains it. Um, but, but yeah, from my point of view, as far as the politics of the period, and this is where I, I, I want to bring in Barry Letts and Terrence Dix, what I think is really great when you look at the behind the scenes of the Pertwee era is that you've got these two men who become friends. I, I don't think they were friends before, but when they worked on Doctor Who together, they became friends fairly quickly of Barry Letts and Terrence Dix, who had very different ideological viewpoints. And both Barry and Terrence, you watch the DVD extras, they're always very open about this. Barry was a very liberal guy. Terrence was a very conservative guy. But they both, you know, were interested in making the best stories that they could. And so because of that, the Pertwee era questions itself. So I don't feel that it is a very one-sided show because you get something like Invasion of the Dinosaurs, um, which is, you know, a story about, um, you know, uh, uh, people who are very, you know, pro-environment and whatnot, but they're the bad guys, right? And this is being written by people. Malcolm Hulk, you know, is, is a guy that's very much on the side of the environmentalists, but he's writing them as the bad guys to show that the idea can be taken too far. And I find that fascinating is that there are people writing against their own, you know, sort of predilections to show like, you know, even good ideas can be taken too far and stuff like that. And so that's why I said, Eric, that I was going to disagree with you a little bit about the Pertwee era taking like a definitive stance on things, because I do feel like there's this sort of undercurrent of of both, you know, sympathies, you know, Terrence has, has certain sympathies, Barry Letts has certain sympathies, some of the writers have certain sympathies, and, and they pull at each other in a way that doesn't let it become just a monolithic thing. Sure, sure. Um, I, in fact, that was what I was saying. I think that it, I'm sorry, I, you, I must not have communicated very well. I, you know, I, I, I think that the Pertwee era really does straddle the, the poles pretty well there. Um, uh, it's the new series that I think falls down because it really does seem to be more advocacy than it than um, uh, intellectual analysis or you know as you mm. say questioning itself. Mm. Okay, um, so uh, we definitely need to talk about the man himself. Um, we have you know our new doctor, you know John Pertwee that comes in uh, with Spearhead from space, um, and as with all the doctors, he takes things in a you know a different direction. So, um, Miranda, we haven't started with you yet. What are your thoughts of uh, the third doctor and you know John Pertwee as a as a performer doing the third doctor? Um, well, obviously, I'm here talking about it, so I, I love him, and I and I love the the third Doctor, and I, I think Spearhead from Space is honestly probably the best um, Doctor introduction episode of them all. It just it it's a fantastic story, and um, you know, I mean, it just it 
you know, it starts off slow because, of course, the doctor's, you know, addled from being recently forcibly regenerated. But, you know, it kind of eases you into the new doctor and it 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 just it it works. It really it's a terrific, um, you know, and and of course it was shot all on film. So it looks great. And it just has this very cinematic quality. It's just and, you know, the new characters, you know, Liz, I love Liz. She's one of my favorite companions. And you know, unit, it just, it, it just, it has it all and it sets up the whole era and it, it's, it's, it's just terrific, you know, and Pertwee just, he's very different from the previous two doctors, but I think that's a strength, you know, just showing that how versatile this character can be while still maintaining the essence of the doctor. Yeah. Spearhead's definitely written with an eye to, hey, now that we're in color, we might shop this to different countries than we did before. And we really need to make this a jumping on point where you don't have to have seen any previous Doctor Who, and this can be like your first story. Um, and, and I agree, it sort of eases you into things pretty well. Um, you know, so it, it's a fairly good first story also. Even beyond being a first doc, you know, first time watching that Doctor, um, it's, it's a good first story um, for Doctor Who, period. Um, uh, Eric, uh, thoughts on the third Doctor? Oh, gosh, well, you know, he's sort of my desert island doctor although it's hard to you know it's always hard to decide but uh what i find great about this eric is you you just assume that people are going to have a desert island doctor (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i mean you know i would want to take the first seven seasons of the series with me uh if if i had to make a choice um but uh uh you know i i I, again, I I really love Pertwee because he's um, it got he's sort of in that Avengers mold, which I uh, enjoy very much. And um, I don't I don't know that. Um, gosh, I, uh, I I don't have much to say about the man himself, other than I'd love to have met him. Uh, but you know, I think he's uh, he's a he's he's John Pertwee, isn't he? And you know, it's it. Tom Baker says in Who's Doctor Who that he's sort of like a, a a this bright white light bulb that shimmers when you look at him, and and you know he is. Um, uh, although that said, I mean, I we're going to come back to this a, a thousand times. Uh, he's at his best in season seven, and and then again in season ten. Mm. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, if we're going to talk about, like, favorite seasons, like, season 10 is 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 phenomenal. Um, it's kind of ironic, because even though people always talk about the Third Doctor in the context of Unit, my favorite stories with the Third Doctor are when he gets back into space. Well, I mean, I shouldn't say my favorite, because there's Inferno, which is perfect. But um, in general, my favorite, like, sort of, like, era of the Third Doctor is after he gets the ability to travel in the TARDIS again. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, um, Mike, uh, thoughts on the third doctor? He, I love his car, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> that car yes. is that, which, well, which one? He has two. Uh, the yellow one. Okay. I'm not a really big fan of that little hovercraft. <laughs> yeah, the Humobile is a car. It is legally a car. He made sure it could drive on British roads, so it counts. <laughs> <laughs> but no, uh, Coming from the second doctor, he was a little bit of a uh, a fresh air. A little, he had a little bit more. Uh, God, his the atmosphere around him just seems more approachable in, in some way, shape, or form. 
I, I can't really, it's hard to describe it, but like I could go up to him and just, and still get talked down to like, you know, like a Joe, but, uh, but he still seems pretty warm about it in a sense. Uh, my girlfriend, every time I'm watching it, she's like, his hair's too big. I'm like, babe, it's from the seventies. She's like, still too big. <laughs> Terrence Dick says a line that you you can just tell like when a series uh, like a Pertwee story takes place by just like just having a frame of his hair. You know, we can see a picture of him with how big his hair is, and you can tell like which season it is. <laughs> but, yeah. but no, it's just uh, having them in. I still you still see and feel the sense of the first and second Doctors of the, especially with how stern he can get and. That's one of the things I, I look at the, the new series of Doctor Who and Tennant got a little bit of it and Matt as well, but like no one, maybe even definitely for Capaldi, maybe because this is the age thing, but like when, when Perch we like yell at you, I still feel bad. Like I just like, I am so sorry whatever I did, I will leave the toilet seat up. I'm sorry, sir. Just, wow. <laughs> but no, I think Perch we is He's not one of my favorites because we're going into Baker, which is he's one, he's actually my favorite besides Matt Smith. But I, I do enjoy everything Perch we did. He just again, he just had that that sense of just bubbly to him. I just he's just he's just like a cool guy. Yeah. Well, you brought up the thing that I was going to bring up, which is the warmth of the character. And you know, I mean, there are moments when Trouton gets that way, but but normally Trouton's too busy being like you know, being the cosmic hobo, being like the sort of like goofy, you know, impish man, that you don't get that warmth so much. And, and you know, you get it sometimes with, with Hartnell and, and either Vicky or Susan, but again, you know, not so often. I feel like John Pertwee is the doctor that if I could just meet one of the doctors and just like hang out with them for a day, that's the doctor that I'd want to hang out with. Because he just seems like a very friendly guy. And yeah, he gets angry when people are being stupid. Right. You know, like he, he has that anger where he doesn't suffer fools gladly. So all these bureaucrats or whatever, he can get angry with them because they're doing stupid things and he does not brook fools. That's fine. I'm fine with him not brooking fools. But just in general, in his interactions with people like, you know, like regular everyday people that he comes into contact with, it's generally very warm, very friendly, you know. I like that. I like that doctor. You know, like he is a guy that, that I would like to meet. And that's one of the things that really draws me to him. I mean, I also like the fact that he's a little more of that, you know, like he can take care of himself. He's got the Venusian Aikido and it's a little goofy, but you know, it's kind of a fun, like sort of like, you know, Doctor Who-ish way of doing martial arts, right? Because it doesn't, it's not very violent. He just like pokes you and you get paralyzed or he can flip you and stuff. And, you know, I mean, that's, I, that's part of his charm. And also I think is, is kind of cool because he is, you know, more of, uh, you know, of an, of an action star kind of guy. So I like that part of it too. And um, yeah, and he's the best dressed of all the Doctors. Just ah, absolutely. <laughs> it's got the best fashion sense um so yeah i mean eric i hear you about wanting to to have met him and i wish that i could have and you know um i don't know if you remember when we were at gallifrey back in 2003 that was one of the things that gary russell said and i really felt like it in his voice when he said like his biggest regret is not being able to ask john pertwee to work at big finish 
you know that that you know that's his biggest regret you know doctor who wise and so mm-hmm. um you know i can totally feel that but what i did get to do is i got to meet sean pertwee last year ah. which was very exciting and i i went dressed as the third doctor uh and met him and even though obviously you know a different person but the fact that we could talk about his dad together that just meant so much to me because he was you know like kind of touched by it and you know uh you know and so it was just kind of cool and he looks and sounds so much like his dad it he was, seems like, like a really nice guy too yeah yeah he was very friendly at the con yeah no totally um so anyway it doesn't have anything much to do with the third doctor but you know tangential um since he is the son of the actor um just going back to what you said about big finish i mean you know that john pertwee would have done it in a heartbeat oh been yeah around oh yeah oh yeah we you would know. have had uh, uh definitely third doctor and sarah jane stories um because she was willing to do big finish too they could never get tom in those early days you know she wanted they yeah. wanted to do tom and sarah jane stories so um and yeah if they could have gotten katie manning uh, although i don't think back then she was because i know it took big finish even after they they tried getting katie manning a while to get her to agree to do joe again but um well she she was living in australia which meant that they could right. only get her very occasionally and and at that point, she was only willing to do as Iris Wildtime. So, oh, well, yeah, I'm all that's true. Yeah, she did Iris Wildtime, but she says even on interviews that she didn't want to revisit Joe for a long time, right. like even when they wanted her to. So, um, but yeah, yeah, um, and who knows, we might have gotten some Liz in third doc. I don't know how Caroline John would have felt about it, but uh, please don't but... tease me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh. But yeah, I mean, let's let's start talking about companions because that's a big part, I think, of the charm, you know, of this era is we do have so many good companions. And for the purposes of this, I get that there are some people who dispute what is, who is or is not a companion. I am going to count Liz Shaw, despite the fact she never goes, you know, travels in the TARDIS. I am going to count uh, the Brigadier, uh, Benton and Yates. As companions, so we have six companions. You know, Liz, Sarah, Joe, the Brigadier, Benton, and Yates. Um, just for the purposes of this, I don't want to get into what's officially a companion or not. That's not a conversation I want to have. Um, but uh, so, yeah, uh, Anthony, um, who is your favorite of those six? Um, normally, I I'm companions. I think. I mean. I... I think my personal favorite would be Liz. Okay. I think if you were to ask me which one was the most iconic, I would say Joe. Okay, I but let's that... not go with iconic. I want your personal favorite because we're gonna we're gonna go around and there's five of us, so we're gonna talk about them. So you know. Keep... So my my personal favorite would be Liz. I I love the slightly more adult um, figure that she cut than the companions we're used to. She was a serious scientist with serious credentials and it was a pain in the ass that she was brought in to deal with all of this alien stuff in spearhead from space and she's terribly put out by it but by the end you know she softens and and she's she's almost an equal to the doctor in terms of her intellect and uh her ability as a scientist uh, at least as much as a 20th century human can be are, are you sure you're not Eric with an Anthony sounding filter on? <laughs> maybe, maybe. Maybe it's just, you know, we're both historians, man. Um, but I, I, I mean, I like Joe, but you know, you, you kind of lose that. She's, she's a fun companion, but she's, 
she's not quite so capable as a scientist. And I think that's something it misses. And, and then of course, you know, the Brigadier Yates and Benton, who, who doesn't love those three? I mean, they're, they're fantastic. And there's a reason that the three of them uh, ran through all of Pertwee's era and, and in the Brigadier and Benton's case beyond and indeed before. So, uh, you know, Liz is my favorite, but I have a soft spot for all of them. Yeah, so I mean that's that's my uh, and and guys, I, I meant to say this since we're gonna all we're gonna talk about the different companions as we cycle through. Feel free to jump in, you know, and and, and give some you know extra commentary because once we leave a companion, we're not gonna go back to them. Um, but you know, that's that's one of the things that I was kind of mentioning before about um, changes that came because you know Derek Sherwin and Peter Bryant were the ones who set up the Pertwee era in the beginning. Okay. Well, since, since you invite commentary, um, this is your fault, Nathan. Um, Derek Sherwin, other than possibly Phil, Phil Pinchcliffe uh, and Verity Lambert, uh, but Derek Sherwin is the greatest producer of the show, hands okay. down. Um, so the entire aesthetic of season seven is responsible, uh, is his doing, right. I should say. And um, uh, it, it's it's because he had that that sort of realistic mentality about the show, uh, and I, you know, when when Letts comes in, and I adore Barry Letts, I could listen to that man read the telephone book, mm. um, but uh, when Letts comes in, he really oh, yeah. softens the edges that make the whole unit scenario work, and so um, Liz, who is the, the greatest companion ever, except for Barbara. <laughs> um, um, and possibly great. I don't disagree great. with you. I just love how, like, forthrightly you say these things. Oh, I, I mean, I don't, it's just sort of a, a fact, really. It's not even a matter for debate. Okay. Um, but, um, you know, Liz doesn't, I don't know that she would have fit in Barry Lett's era mm -hmm. if, if you think of that as coming in in season eight. Um, you know, because she's a stern kind of figure and uh, she's sort of a skeptic. And you need a, a kind of a gullible figure who is a little uh, cartoonish like Joe to fit in with season eight and beyond. Um, so I, while I'm, I, I think that Liz is one of the kind of lost opportunities for the series, I'm kind of glad she doesn't go beyond uh, season seven if, if the rest of the series was going to turn out the way it did. Eric, I completely agree with you on that. Season seven has a very, very different feel to the rest of the Pertwee era. It's almost kind of Quatermass in feel. Yes. Um, and yeah, I, I, I adore Liz, but I'm with you. I don't think she would have worked with the way the show went after season seven when they introduced a bit more of the off-world elements and the, the humor and, and the very tone of the show changed. I don't think she would have fit. Well, yeah, the real question is what would things have been like if Derek Sherwin had stayed on the show? Oh. You know, because then that would have been an interest. I mean, the thing is, Liz probably would have been out anyway because Caroline John got pregnant. So, I mean, there was a real world issue there also. Um, but, but, you know, but that aside, that aside, what I was going to say, though, is this is the point I was trying to make before, Eric, or at least one of them, is that, you know, Barry Letts and Terrence Dix, you know, you know come in. You know, Bay, I mean, Terrence Dix was already there, but, you know, Barry Letts comes in and he decides, well, Liz is too smart. You need a companion that's just going to ask questions. 
you know, and that's one of the things that I feel like was sort of a detriment to the series and, and sort of, uh, I think, I think, um, disparaging to the audience. Um, yeah, definitely. And honestly, I think that whole idea is also kind of, um, you know, taking away from the doctor because it's the whole Holmes and Watson thing where, you know, oh, if you make Watson stupid, then that makes Holmes seem smart. But in fact, it's the opposite. The whole idea, you know, like, and is that, you know, if you have a very intelligent, um, you know, character like Watson or like Liz, and then the doctor or Holmes is so much smarter than even this very intelligent person that just points up how, how, you know, how intelligent that character is rather than, you know, having a bumbling, you know, dumb character doesn't, doesn't make them look better. No, but not, not in any way that Joe was, was dumb. She certainly wasn't. I, as much as I love Liz and think she was so terrific of a character to have, I, I don't think Joe is a bad character at all. I love her very much. She has, she has other strengths that are different, but, um, you know, um, I just, but yeah, I definitely would, I, I, there have been, they have said that, yes, they thought Liz was too smart. And, uh, that, that always bothered me because I, I think having, you know, a character that's the cream of, of intelligence working with, um, um, you know, the doctor was, you know, made him look smarter and it was nice to see him on the same level. Go back into, you know, Verity Lambert and her whole thing about how you can't talk down to the audience. And, you know, I think that that's part of that, too, is that that's something that they got right in the 60s. You know, you can have these intelligent, you know, main characters with Barbara and Ian. And that doesn't mean that the kids, you know, that's not like alienating your, your young viewers. That's making them interested. I can tell you personally, because I was watching, I, I actually was in a pretty good position where I was able to watch the first 23 seasons of the show within you know like four or five years of my life at all when i was in in you know single digits so like from about the time i was five to about the time i was 10 i saw the first 23 seasons of the show the hartnell stories made me interested in reading up about you know history and about the things that they were talking about and stuff so i mean like to say like if a character is too intelligent like it's alienating you know younger people i don't think it is i think that's going to engage them more and make them more interested in finding out stuff um but um, well i think that the real problem with the uh departure of liz is the complete absence of jazz flute accompanying <laughs> her what do you get instead when when Joe Grant comes along, you get horrible farty radiophonic music. It's not even good radiophonic music. I I was gonna ask you about how you feel that Unit no longer has that music from the invasion. Uh, it it pains me because all of the incidental music, with the possible exception of the Silurians, is top notch stuff in season seven. I'm just there's there's nothing. That isn't perfect in season seven, except possibly Liz's hair, which if you note, if you note, Liz, her hair changes after Spearhead. And yes. it's pretty clear they're already softening her character by kind of making her more feminine mm -hmm. uh, with that horrible wig. Um, mm -hmm. You know, that's why Liz is so much more incredible when she's in the infer in Inferno and she's in her jackboots, and her hair's different again. <laughs> you heard right, it here I'm first. Gonna, I'm going to bite my tongue on the comment. <laughs> <laughs> when her we hair all know is short about your and bob, are. 
<laughs> just, just going back to the music for a second there. Yeah. So just going back to the music, it absolutely peaks in the ambassador. Oh, absolutely. That is absolutely. the best. Mm. No. The only uh, so, time it gets better ever in the entire series, uh, at least in the Dudley Simpson era, is City of Death. Mm. That's a pretty good score. Uh, Mike, we've been talking a lot. Do you have anything you want to say about Liz? No, not really. She was cool. And I do agree that it was actually I like I did like that she and uh and Perch we were on the same level of that dynamic, just like the Sherlock Holmes and the Watson. That's actually the best analogy that I've heard. So yeah. that was that's on point. Well, and that's the thing, it's like there was still and I even I even disagree with the whole idea that there's no way for the doctor to give exposition because first of all there's all the unit people around it's pretty easy for one of them to ask the doctor you know what's going on or what this means or whatever but also even though liz is very smart the doctor deals with things that are outside of her you know uh just experience and so there's still a lot of times where the doctor has to explain things to her and whatnot even the four stories that we have so i still feel like even that is an argument there's still plenty of opportunity for the doctor to explain what's going on to the audience and i just feel like it's a lack of imagination um, yeah, I actually really love uh, Barry Lutz and Terrence Dix, and, and I don't want to disparage them. It was a zinger earlier, but I do feel like some of the changes that Lutz made, such as, uh, you know, because he wanted, he, he fired, you know, they made the decision to get rid of Liz before they knew that she was pregnant. Um, and so, you know, some of the decisions that they made were, you know, not for the betterment of the series. Um, but, uh, but yeah, let's move on here. Or we're never going to get through all this. Um, so, Miranda, um, since we already talked about Liz, who would you pick as, as another companion that you really like that you would like to talk about? Um, you know, I really do love Joe. I mean, Liz is my favorite, just personally. Um, but I, I think um, it's, I hope people don't just reduce Joe to being, you know, just a, a stupid young girl in a short skirt, because she's not dumb. She's very smart and you know, her, her kind of like backstory that we get a little bit of her about her is that, you know, she wanted to, she wanted to be a spy and do all this stuff. And that, you know, she had a connection that got her the job, but like, she was really, you know, intent on, on learning and doing this job. Like it wasn't, you know, she, you know, she's not, you know, she's not dumb and she, she, she wants to help and, and be a part of this and learn. And she does. And, and I think that, you know, Joe is, you know, she's very brave as, as all the companions are, no matter, you know, I think, I think a lot of times people, I think people who come to it from new who a lot of times believe the stuff that, oh, classic who companions, they were just, you know, girls in short skirts screaming and, you know, they were dumb and didn't do anything, but really they, they were not. I mean, Joe is, does, you know, she does a lot of, I mean, all the, the, the companions, they do a lot of like really brave things and, you know, they face down the master and monsters and all these other you know baddies just like the doctor does but they don't have all of his you know time knowledge and and things that he has so it it you know i mean i in a way it almost makes you know these young companions even braver than the doctor in a way because they don't have all of his resources to you know to to draw on and yet they still they're still willing to go in there and and do their part to help save the world so um, you know, Joe is, and you know, she's such a, a sunny, likable character. Um, you know, I mean, after Liz left, I was, you know, I was a little bit like, who is this new girl coming in? But I mean, she, she won me over so soon because she's just, she's just a very positive, very just 
she's she's a great character. And John Pertwee had terrific chemistry with all of his companions. He's just like he's just such a very, you know, he's a very like warm doctor. You know, he's very caring, and it's it, it he and he's not afraid to show it to to any of his his companions and friends. And and it just makes it's a very nice dynamic to to watch. Yeah, I, I, you know, I have newfound appreciation for Joe. I think I used to be a lot more critical of her. Um, and it's one of those things, because I, I, you know, I only watched the, the Pertwee stories linearly when I was a very small kid, you know, watching from Spearhead to um, um, Planet of the Spiders. Uh, and since then, you know, after that, it was just, well, which ones did I have on VHS tape? And so I watched those in whatever order. And it wasn't until re-watching again as an adult, you know, sometime in my 20s and watching the Pertwee stories all the way through, one of the things that I appreciate about Joe is that there is an arc for her character. And while it might not have been overt yeah. or planned or whatever, Joe becomes more capable as the series progresses. So, yeah, in Terror of the Autons, she yeah. is kind of like the klutz that can't get anything right and whatever. But by the time you get to, like, say, Frontier in Space, like, first of all, not only is she, like, super escape woman, but, like, the master not only gives her the credit, like, like, you know, she, she resists the master's hypnotism, but you find out that not only can she resist yeah. the master's hypnotism, he's already planned for the fact that she'll resist his hypnotism. So he's giving her the credit <laughs> that she's figured out how to do this and has a whole backup plan in place for it. So I found that interesting watching it through as an adult and realizing that even the master thinks that, you know, gives Joe, like, the credit of being able to do this. So I, I thought that was really interesting. And I, I do like that because I don't think a lot of companions do change over their course of time. But I think Joe does, which actually makes her one of the more dynamic companions, uh, which makes her a lot more interesting. And to, to that point, Nathan, I mean, I think while her departure is a little sudden of, hey, oh. let's just marry this guy I just met. <laughs> oh, but that's not yeah, uncommon yeah. in Doctor Who. Even by then it was established that that was the way to get rid of companions. <laughs> that's true. But, you know, I, I think it's one of those things where her departure, even if it wasn't necessarily too clear, had been earmarked for a while. Um, you know, there was the the flirtation with one of the, the Thals. I mean, she was, it. I think she was starting to outgrow the doctor i think she by that stage you know it's almost scripted as if she knows that her time with the doctor is finite and she's starting to come to the end of it um and i think that's very much part of her story arc she has learned everything she can from the doctor and now it's time to go and experience something else i'm 100 percent with you she has a very definite story arc what a heart-wrenching departure yeah we see oh the doctor gosh. more visibly upset than we've seen him visibly upset about anyone's departure including susan that shot from a distance of the doctor and bessie just driving along and you see him go horizontally across the drive horizontally across the screen Oh my gosh, you know, that that's a, a real uh, tearjerker. But, you know, it's funny because he's not just sad. He's actually resentful. Oh, yeah. um, and it's that's an unusual thing to see in him. Um, it's very well acted by Pertwee. And that story in general is just built very well. Um, uh, if, if I might throw in my two cents about Joe, I, I don't. I, I love Joe. She was my first companion, really. 
in, in the sense that I got to watch more than a few stories. Um, and so she was my first companion departure. And I was really uh, shocked by that. Um, I, I guess I, you know, it takes a while for you to learn how Doctor Who functions as a series, you know, um, that people come and go. Um, but uh, I, I, I have always had trouble with season eight. Um, I, I, the entire aesthetic of season eight, I almost despise. Uh, I rarely watch the season. I love the mind of evil. And then most of the rest of it, I force myself to watch. Um, uh, so I kind of associate Joe with that when I think of her, even though her best moments are in seasons nine and 10. I mean, she's awesome in season 10. Um, uh, and one other comment about her, I, I think that uh, Joe is probably the first kind of ironic companion in that she seems slightly aware that she's in a TV show. Um, you know, she, she comments on the uh, absurdities of the plot periodically uh, in a gentle way. I mean, it's nothing too in your face, but I, I think it's uh, all, everyone before Joe sort of treats this series as though it's deadly serious, you know, um, you know, and as, as though it's real. And I think that Joe is really the first companion who uh, departs from that a little bit. And I don't know what that means in the long run, but uh, it, it makes for fun viewing. Um, like a little but bit of a wink be, to the camera. Yeah. And, and I, I think maybe it's to the detriment of the series in the long run. Yeah, I think that was a product of kind of the whole change in tone in, in season eight. I honestly think Terror of the Autons was like the first time that the actual tone of the whole show shifted from serious to more campy. Mm. You know, I mean, once you have people being killed by plastic chairs and plastic daisies, it's it kind of loses the, this is very serious science fiction kind of feel. And it kind of got into the more campy, um, you know, camp, the way that we think of Doctor Who as being sort of a campy show. I feel like that tone kind of started there and it shifted kind of subtly that way ever since. It shifts basically from Quatermass to the later series of The Avengers is the yeah, kind of tonal shift. Eight. Yeah. I mean, season six, yeah, with Tara King. Yeah. Because yeah, you're right, because, I mean, there had been humor in the series before, but the humor was all character-based rather than, like, sort of, like, the tone of the series being humorous or trying to inject more, you know, sort of silliness into it. So I can see that. I, I will say I wouldn't necessarily locate the uh, shift in tone in things like daffodils killing people and things like that, which I, I think there's room for that in the Doctor Who kind of lexicon. I think it's the entire aesthetic of the show. Um, it, it, I don't know. It's hard to define what it is. Part of it's the music, um, but, and part of it's the direction, I think, too. Uh, but it really does become a bit more action-adventure rather than uh equator mass i guess is the right is the best i can say mm. i wonder if the, i mean there's there's such heavy cso use in terror of the autons also that i'm i wonder if some of that and just the difficulty of acting against green or back or blue backdrops was you know also somewhat of a of an issue with the sort of tone of the story um it's harder for the actors to take it seriously when they're not in a real set 
kind of thing. So I think with with season eight, you also get to a point where if you're watching it in order, and imagine you're watching it episodically once a week, and by the end you're just like, okay, so we've had the master in the last four series, four four stories. Oh bloody hell, here he is again. Like <laughs> but the, 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 the lack of variety. I love Delgado, but they overplayed him. In that first season he's in, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I'm I was you beat me to it, Anthony. Um I uh I would say that the introduction to, of the master at all is a serious, serious misstep for the series. Um I, I love Delgado, I love the master. I'm not saying that I don't enjoy those stories, but uh, I don't know that the doctor really needs a, a an arch enemy. Uh, and so it really makes the series more like a comic book. You know, Superman has Lex Luthor, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, you know, Doctor Who does not need the Joker. Um, and and I think that, you know, the Master isn't the greatest character that was ever devised. And I, he's a lot of fun, uh, you know, and, and season eight has its redeeming moments. Uh, the Mind of Evil is worth the entire series. Um but it, he's i just think he's a, a bad influence on the series it takes away from the the true arch villain yartak <laughs> <laughs> of the alien vorg yeah, the alien vorg <laughs> all right but but see all right so eric here's my counterpoint to you you know what i mean even though you know when Barry Letts came in, he realized that they, you know, were going to take the show into space. They wanted to do it very slowly, have the Doctor slowly, you know, have these first be sent on missions from the Time Lords and then finally get the dematerialization circuit back. I think the Master was almost a necessary evil for the Earthbound stories just to get out of that whole, you know, like, oh, well, we either have the mad scientist or the alien invasion. It was a, now, I think they overused him in season eight, but I think that having that as part of the mix of having this sort of reoccurring enemy type character was another way of just adding some interest to the to yeah. the Earthbound stories. I don't disagree with you at all. I just, I, I just don't think that he's the greatest character. Um, and, and at the same time, he has no character. Um, you know, he's an old friend of the doctor's that's now not a friend. I mean, that's basically his entire brief. Um, can, and while we're on all right, it, all right, but, but, all right, all right, all right, all right, I, I've heard you disparage this too, too much. Um, Roger Delgado, he takes that little, that little window we get and he drives a Mack truck through it. Okay. He is, <laughs> he is so charming. And so interesting and so magnetic when he is on the screen. You don't care about any of that because he oh, is so good. Mm -hmm. Yes, he is. But, yes. I mean, in the long term, Honestly. I just don't think he's a great, you know. Uh, all right, Miranda, what are you saying? I was just saying that I think um, for me, like where the new series falls flat with the master is just making him crazy and not mm -hmm. really giving him any sort of personality. Whereas the thing that was so great about, you know, the master in the classic series, especially with Roger Delgado, was that he just had this very suave, sophisticated persona that was so charming that even though, you know, he is basically a, a kind of a sort of stock arch nemesis villain that doesn't, yeah, doesn't really have the, a lot of backstory. It's, you know, he just, he, he himself gives the character such a personality that like you love to hate him, you know, you mm -hmm. enjoy the stories, you know, where he's 
you know, savoring his evil like a fine wine. It's like it's it's fun, you know. And I think that that honestly that makes a good villain is when you when you like when they show up, you know, when it's a fun time. Nathan, since we're talking about season eight, is this the moment when we get to talk about what a horrendously awful story Colony in Space okay, is? Okay, all right, all right, all right. Eric, Eric, not everybody has had a chance to talk about a companion yet, so we're going to put a pin in this. <laughs> in fact, Mike hasn't even gotten to say if he feels like anything he thinks about Joe yet. So, Mike, <laughs> any thoughts on Joe? Oh, I'm not a nice person. I I actually didn't really enjoy Joe too much. I it was already said that the master recognized Joe blocking his uh, his mind control. That is like the biggest pop I will ever give Joe, and or any ruler companion. It's like because I was in the same boat when I watched it. It's like nope, I broke it. He's like, well done. I'm like, yeah, well done, Joe. <laughs> Damn, you showed you showed up. You showed up. <laughs> and but then yeah just like that it's that's the only big memory i have of joe is breaking the mind control and then getting married mm. like every girl's dream <laughs> <laughs> yeah well you know she was gonna bring it in frontier because she was wearing the karate outfit yeah but, yeah <laughs> oh, yeah but i also believe that joe could have done better you know yeah again well, it just goes yeah. back to green death she could have done better yeah yeah Seven the 70s were an interesting time. Um, but, uh, I'll take your word. Oh, yes. I'll have nothing, I'll hear nothing said bad about Dr. Clifford Jones. He is awful. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And I must say about Joe, she rocks that white pantsuit in sea, the Sea Devils, especially when she is um <laughs> Stuart fell climbing up the ladder. <laughs> I knew you were going there as soon as you said it. Yes. As soon as you started mentioning that pantsuit. All right, um, Mike, so we already talked about Liz and Joe. Um, who would you like to talk about? As a, Who's your favorite of the ones who are left? <laughs> oh, Bo, you know me. I hit these right side hitters. I'm going to go with my boy, Benton. All right, yeah. That's my boy. <laughs> I recognize myself with that dude ever so much. <laughs> Just, I'm here, I'm quirky, and you know what? I'm an all-around good guy. Yeah. But Benson's, I, I absolutely love Benson every time he's on screen. Well, Benson is like the average guy, right? It's so cool yeah. because, like, it's Doctor Who, like, giving us a character, you know, because everyone else has had something, right? I mean, something that's made them either unusual or, you know, personality-wise, eccentric, whatever, you know. Benton is just like the most like great everyman, you know? <laughs> like he's such a lovable character. Um, yeah, I, I absolutely adore Benton. Uh, yeah, it's I just like I, I mean it just relates to him because he gets like he's just bebopping around and it's like, hey, how's everything going? Uh, Benton, like, oh, sorry, Brigadier General, <laughs> he backs away because does what he needs to do. It's like, okay, get him in check. Good job. God. <laughs> Benton is really just I, great. I love him. Mm -hmm. I love the fact that Benton starts out in the invasion. Uh, that really mm -hmm. does it for me. There's that continuity there. Um, I, I and, and I remember, I don't know, probably 25 years ago, there was a an article about loose ends in Doctor Who stories, 
Uh, and one of them concerned whoever it was that delivered the radioactive isotope. Yes, I remember that article. Yeah, and I was scandalized by it because it concluded that the only possible person was Benton. <laughs> and I've, I've never been able to forget that. <laughs> I think that article was even titled Was Benton a Murderer? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> and it was in Doctor Who magazine. I definitely remember that. I see you were scandalized too, Anthony. I was a little bit, yeah. <laughs> there I was like 12 years old in, I don't know, this must be, I'm 32 now, so this, this would have been in, in 2000 in Doctor Who magazine. And suddenly I'm presented with this article of Was Benton a Murderer? And it had other unsolved mysteries, uh, such as, you know, who let the doctor out of the closet in Image of the Fendal. Um, yes. But like, what? Does not compute. Yeah, it was very shocking. But just going back to what Mike said about Benton being like the every guy, that moment when he walks into the TARDIS in uh, The Three Doctors, and they're like, well, aren't, aren't you going to say it's bigger on the inside? And he goes, well, that's just kind of obvious, isn't it? <laughs> that says it all. He, see, he says it as he sees it. <laughs> well, there's all Love sorts it. of nice touches. I mean, again, this is like a background character in many ways, but then they'll do things like he's talking about how he has to take his sister out to go ballroom dancing and stuff like that. It's like he's got these little character things that just get injected in there. <laughs> and it's just really nice. And, and when you consider, you know, the story of John Levine also, and the fact that he had been part of the show you know, during the Troughton era playing Cybermen or Yeti or whatever. And the fact that it was his personal friendship with Patrick Troughton that they started up and, and Troughton was the one who basically urged him like, you know, go, go into actual acting where they can see your face and, you know, you don't have to just be a creature and, and, and sort of getting him, you know, sort of the gig with invasion and everything. I find that story so, you know, charming also that it just adds another layer when I'm watching Benton knowing that he's kind of like, you know, part of the Doctor Who family in the same way that he's part of the unit family. I think, wasn't that Douglas Camfield? You're saying that urge to Benton to, to go on, or John yes. Levine to... I, although, yeah. although, all that I know is the last, well, at least when I heard him talk in Chicago TARDIS, he was t saying that it was uh, Pat that, like, urged him. Oh, but it okay. might have been both of them. Yeah, he, uh, Camfield employed him, of course, at, in Web of Fear and, mm -hmm. and uh, the Invasion, so... Yeah. Well, I mean, he could have had multiple people telling him, like, hey, you're ready for, you know, going in front of the camera as yourself, you know. Well, he certainly did that at the end of the time, Monster, in his... <laughs> <laughs> touché, sir. Touché. <laughs> uh, Miranda, any thoughts on Benton? Uh, I don't know what I can add, except that, yeah, I agree. He's he's the lovable everyman. I mean, just his, you know, I mean, you can't not love Benton. All right. Um. So, Eric, I know we've taken, you know, uh, three three characters away, but uh, who would you like to talk about of who we have left? Um. Well, I think the Brig's a little obvious, so I'll let somebody else do the do the Brig, although... Uh, oh, no, I'll do the brig. What the okay. hell? Um, <laughs> I was like, okay, I'll, I'll talk about the brig, but that's fine. <laughs> I, I, um, I, there have been few deaths in Hoodum that have upset me more than, than losing Nicholas Courtney, who mm. I, I adore. And I adore him in everything I see him in. And um, he was, I mean, I never met the man again, but I, I certainly wish I had because I think he was a gentle wise man 
Uh, and I was really heartened when I read the John Nathan Turner biography, um, which is very much worth reading. I, I was really fascinated and heartened that he was a, um, to discover that he was a rather devout Christian. I thought that was kind of neat. Um, but, uh, and he also became very close friends with Tom Baker after mm-hmm. not the greatest start with him. Um, and he was very close friends with John Nathan Turner too. Um, so, I mean, imagine going to a, a bar with Tom Baker, Nicholas Courtney, and John Nathan Turner. Uh, I mean, it's almost, uh, I mean, I just, I can't imagine anything more hilarious. Um, but anyway, uh, the brig, gosh, I mean, is there a, is there a spine that runs through Doctor Who, uh, that is more important than the Brigadier? Um, and, uh, I, I've, I've been watching, uh, season 13, uh, recently and, uh, had to watch the rather sad departure of the unit family, um, you know, starting with everybody firing on all cylinders in Zygons, followed by, you know, everybody's there but the brig in Android Invasion, and then finally, um, uh, you know, Seeds of Doom, where it's just unit in name only. Um, and and I still remember the joy I felt when he appeared in Battlefield. Um, and uh, I know that's a long way away from the Pertwee era, but, I mean, this is the anchor that most of modern Doctor Who orbits around, really. Um, uh, and, and the friendship between the Brigadier and the Doctor is, I think, one of the great relationships uh, of television in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, maybe that's overstating it, but, you know, they, he was on TV for five years straight, basically. Um, that's quite a career for a character. Um, so, I mean... I, it seems to me that the brigadier really ought to be everybody's favorite companion, but I think he's, he transcends that role really. And he's really as much an icon of the series as the TARDIS is, or, you know, uh, you know, whatever else. Um, And I, I think one of the great sadnesses of the new series is that they didn't move quickly enough to let him be in an episode. Uh, And instead you get that awful, uh, nursing home telephone call thing in Matt Matt Smith's era. Um, yeah, I, I always thought that was pretty sad in that they got him in the Sarah Jane adventures, but not in Doctor Who proper. Yeah. You know, what was with that? His turn in Sarah Jane was great. I mean, you know, um, but, I, you know, my my favorite Brigadier is the Brigadier of season six and seven uh and then i i think after the three doctors you know the green death he's amazing uh in a different way in a softened way uh maybe like he's been talking to his therapist since the three doctors um and then he really comes roaring back for season 11 and 12 and 13 um and i i think that you know, the Terror of the Zygons Brigadier is just as great of a character as the Invasion Brigadier. What a man. What a character and what an actor. Yeah, I mean, for, for me, I mean, there's two things there. One is Nicholas Courtney. And, you know, uh, to liken it to Star Trek, 
you you always in any fandom have your William Shatner's and your James Doohan's, right? You've got your you, you've got the actors who are like, I'm way better than any of this, and you know, I'm too good for you fans. And then you've got your James Doohan's who are very much like, no, this is what it's all about. Like these are the people that made you know made us famous, and you know we should respect that. Nicholas Courtney's very much in that James Doohan mold, right? He's the guy who's like, I love fans. I'm gonna be at these conventions. I'm going to spend time with them because these are the people who love my you know, this character that I created and love this work that I'm doing. And, you know, I, I really respect that about him that he, you know, connected with fandom in that way. As for the character of the Brigadier, I always look at the Brigadier as like, you know, the British version, you know, I'm not gonna say Captain Britain because that's an actual character, but he's like, he's like Captain America is to America. He is that for England. He is like the <laughs> distillation of like British values like all in like a single person <laughs> and, and i just love that i love the fact that he is just this person that encapsulates like all the you know like you know all that's like best or good and pure within like british culture <laughs> and and i love that like like that's like when people talk about him being a soldier or whatever but i'm like but but you never get the feeling that this is like some sort of like militant like you know angry person this is a guy that wants to defend his home right you know like this is this is a person that is that is you know like yeah he's military but this is this is a good person trying to exactly. do right yeah exactly that's really what i love about the brigadier is even though you know he's always like yes let's blow up the aliens it's not it's not coming from a bloodthirsty violent place it's coming from a, my duty is to defend the earth and the people of britain and everywhere and that that sort of very protective kind of quality to him he has a great moral core really i mean even though it, his methods differ from the doctors and i think that that conflict between them of they're both really out to 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 save the world but just they have different methods of how they think to do that that's it's it creates such a great um you know tension in the stories yeah i mean it's important to note that never at any point and i think it would be unthinkable to think of the brigadier going out and attacking uh, aliens unprovoked. It is always exactly. in the case where the aliens are the ones already attacking humans that the brigadier gets militant and and is attacking them mm -hmm. back. You know, he is not of the shoot first, ask questions later type. Well, maybe a little. <laughs> um, I, you know, you guys sort of suggested that Benton is the everyman character, but I, I think to some extent the brig is. Um, you know, he's he's the one who is is our cipher in a way as viewers who is reacting the way we would react. You know, I, I know that in our PC age, we're supposed to not be xenophobic, even when they're actual, you know, aliens. But, um, you know, most of us, when um, presented with actual aliens from another planet, would want to take out the largest gun that we have and send them back to their planet and i think that the brigadier reacts the way normal people would react when facing these kinds of threats <clears throat> and i like that about him i like the fact that he 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 pounds some sense into doctor who's airy fairy little brain sometimes well, it's interesting because the Silurians is what's often brought up, right? And in the Silurians, the doctor does have that line of, you know, that's murder. But the fact of the matter is, the way that the, the you know, it's depicted, 
the doctor was interacting with the one nice Silurian, the one who was, you know, willing to deal with humans. Like, all the rest of them were in the anti-human crowd. <laughs> yeah. Know? So was the Brigadier wrong to do that? I don't know. You know, it's it's difficult to say based on what we saw, but it seems like, yeah, I think maybe the Brigadier was right in that case. Well, it's, it's, we see that dilemma coming up time and time again. You get it again in the Christmas Invasion, you get it later in um, the the Hungry Earth, uh, that two-parter. You know, it's, it's always that, well, yeah, Doctor, you have these, these high and mighty morals, but equally we've got to look after humanity um, and make sure that, you know, the world is safe uh, for, for a longer term. And I, I think that says a lot about this era, as well as to how the Brigadier thinks. Well, and, and actually, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the Christmas Invasion because it's a great example of how the modern series, uh, it, it's, its view of politics versus the original series. Because in the original series, um, at least there is some kind of tension between what the Doctor is advocating and what the Brigadier is advocating. And it's not entirely clear which is the correct answer. Whereas in, in the Christmas Invasion, we're supposed to agree with the Doctor when he topples Harriet Jones. And actually, he's an unreasonable ass in that, in my view. Um, but, and, and that's just the beginning for the character at that point. I mean, he just gets more unreasonable, you know, uh, really through the rest of the, the modern series, um, in, in my view. And, and I, I think it's a great example of how the two series really have very different understandings of how they should be political. Yeah, fair enough. I get that. Uh, Mike, did you have anything you wanted to say about the Brigadier? I do like him. <laughs> I'm not much of a military man, but I absolutely respect his position and his authority. I and even just seeing his daughter uh, in the new season go with that same motif of she's a leader of uh, of unit. It's like my goodness, salute. Yes. <laughs> So Brigadier, as much as uh, he's probably he's part of the military complex machine, like I absolutely love him, I respect him, and he, he I I definitely feel like the comparison between this and the Christmas story, uh, this was definitely held differently than what we've seen uh, in the new season when it comes to that kind of mentality. Brigadier kept a level head. He kept a level head. Can we talk about the? bizarre cult of the brigadier that came out of the 90s that resulted in the brigadier being turned into a cyberman which is the most child destroying moment that has ever been put on television <laughs> can we talk about that nathan or we just really quick because we we gotta we got there's a couple more things i want to talk about <laughs> well i i've never liked the idea that the brigadier had to be this folk hero for the 70s children or you know uh, the actually late sixties children, uh, who you know in the in the novels is turned into a, an immortal, and or whatever he is, and he he's de-aged. rejuvenated, and yeah. yeah, and um, and partly that was because, partly I feel that way because if you'd ever wanted to have the brigadier on a new TV series, you'd have to I don't know find somebody young, um, if you wanted to stay consistent with the novels, which hey no one no one does apparently, um. But then the horrific, 
horrific thing that was done to the brigadier and really all human beings who ever died on the planet earth up to that point in death in heaven or whatever the second episode was called um i just i've never i refuse to rewatch it i i assume that that is all a dream because or something it's interesting what they did in that two-parter because it seemed like a really uh conscious attempt to recapture the spirit of the invasion and then the Pertwee era and then they just messed it up so so badly with what they did in the second half yes i agree so badly that first episode is amazing yeah and then the 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 everyone who's ever died becoming a side man that was so utterly tasteless yes yeah, not only was it bad science, it was kind of an insult to everybody who who loved the Brigadier. And it just, you know, if they were trying to do a tribute, they they really missed the mark. And I just pretend it didn't happen. <laughs> I'm yeah. I'm half convinced that um, uh, Clara and the Doctor are were eaten by the dream crabs. <laughs> <laughs> that would be fine with me. <laughs> <laughs> I, isn't that one before that, or is that after it? I've forgotten. It's uh, after. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yes, they were eaten by the dream crabs. Okay. All right. So we're going to move on now because that we're getting too far off. Um, but I'm going to talk about Sarah Jane, um, and I'm going to make another controversial statement tonight. I prefer Sarah Jane with the third Doctor than with the fourth Doctor. I, I know most people say she's like the like. Me the too. Oh. Thank you. Someone who agrees. Oh, thank goodness. Yeah, because like. You know, everybody says, like, oh, she and the fourth Doctor, like, the perfect Doctor companion grouping. And and frankly, I like other people better with the fourth Doctor, too. I think that she's, you know, fantastic with the third Doctor. She's a little bit of a tougher character. She's a little bit of a feistier character. I love that relationship that they have. And also, though, you know, we talked about the, the chemistry between Joe and the third Doctor. It's a different relationship that they have. But she also has wonderful chemistry with John Pertwee, where they're just sparking off each other, you know, from the get-go in The Time Warrior. And I absolutely love watching them together. Um, And I like the fact, again, like we were talking about Liz, even though Sarah Jane isn't a scientist, she is an older professional type character. You know, she is someone that is established and has her own skills and everything. And And I like that you know, a uh, step further show also. And frankly, when she gets into the fourth Doctor era, you kind of forget that she's a journalist because she almost never uses it. You know, like that that becomes, she's just, she's just the Doctor's buddy, you know? So, um, you know, I really like, I really like the, that season 11, you know, Doctor Companion pairing of, of the Doctor, uh, third Doctor and Sarah Jane. Yeah. Yeah, I think Sarah Jane's character was so much stronger with, um, you know, in that season in the beginning, you know, when she ha- was, you know, a reporter and, and a more serious character. And I think once, you know, once the fourth Doctor came in, they kind of forgot that she was a reporter and a professional grown up and kind of pushed her more into the screaming and getting captured companion stereotype that, that, that people think of when they haven't seen a lot of classic who and unfortunately i actually think that sarah jane's later episodes were where that stereotype came from because you know the fourth doctor was the first that a lot of americans saw so i think they just thought that oh all of classic who was like that not having seen any of the 60s and and earlier 70s episodes where 
companions generally were not were not like that and were given much much stronger roles yeah i, I... wow miranda you may be the first person who's ever agreed with me on this <laughs> all right i'm sorry eric well i i i don't dislike sarah with pertwee and i i, I you know i I like the fact that she has kind of a, a really strongly formed character, but there's an easiness to her relationship with Tom that I think is uh, makes for meh, more interesting viewing or more relaxed viewing or something. I will say this. One of the things I do love about the Pertwee and Sarah combination is that there's she's just sort of a reporter that spends time occasionally with a doctor. Mm-hmm. She's not really his traveling companion in that, even though we see the episodes where they're traveling together. But it sure seems like they spend time apart, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think that's kind of an interesting dynamic that you, of course, we don't see much of it because we're watching the show for them. But, um, you know, you sort of imagine her off doing these stories for the Metropolitan or whatever it is she does, does them for. Uh, and I think that's neat. Anthony, any thoughts? Uh, in general, I agree. I mean, I think she actually, the dynamic between her and the third Doctor was better than it was with the fourth Doctor. I completely agree with that. I would say she had better stories with the fourth Doctor, and I think that's why people tend to pair her more with the fourth Doctor in their heads than the third Doctor, aside from the fact she had more stories. But I think in general, they were better stories. I mean, I would take even planet of wretched evil over the monster of peladon um any day but <laughs> okay but now now compare it to the time well Warrior. exactly but you know, <laughs> you know i mean you could make the same argument i i would prefer to watch the ark in space or pyramids of mars over the time warrior even though i think the time warrior is an excellent story uh but i i just think that dynamic with part was a bit more interesting uh, and I completely agree with the statements that, um, you know, you, you got a little more of her backstory and it seemed to be a bit better established in that first season and they kind of either got bored or forgot about it after that. You know what's weird, though? When when they're paired together in The Five Doctors, they are awful yeah. together. I mean, really, it's I, it's almost like The Third Doctor is written as Tom Baker um, well, I think she was well, meant to be paired yeah, think, with Tom I Baker, have, and then he said he wasn't going to do yeah, it. Yes. <laughs> right. We had yeah. the issue of Terrence rewriting that script so many times that I think there were problems with uh, getting the tone right for, for, yeah. Yes, you're right. But I, I think that Pertwee's just, I don't know, he's kind of an ass in that story. I, he's un, unusually condescending to pretty much everybody in that story. Wait, wait, when a doctor's brought back for a multi-doctor story, they don't write him correctly anymore? Oh my goodness. <laughs> you would think Stop if Terrence Dix was writing him, he'd get it right. Well, I know, but also it had been, what, 10? Uh, not well, 10 not years, eight, 8 years. 8 years, yeah. So it had been 8 years, I don't know. <laughs> um. But uh, yeah, I guess I don't really know why that was. But uh, but Mike, any thoughts on on Sarah Jane with the Third Doctor? So I haven't seen Sarah Jane with the Fourth. It's been a while since I've seen Baker, and I can't wait to see my boy again. Uh, but no, I, I seriously, Sarah Jane is like the freaking best, and I do like her dynamic with uh, with Pertwee. And I agree that she 
is supposed to be this journalist, but doesn't really use that journalist esque anymore outside of uh, the a- after the spider episode, uh, the Planet of Spiders. So it was just a little. I was like, "Yeah, you're a journalist. Let's bring that. Let's let's keep that going here. Let's keep it going." Yeah, she probably got shift. She probably got shifted from you know undercover investigative journalism to being a lifestyle columnist. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awful. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I, we don't really have much time because uh, you know I know Anthony's against the clock here. Um, I, I mean, Mikey Yates. None of us talked about him. I think that's kind of telling in and of itself. Um, you know, I, I think the scene in Day of the Daleks kind of encapsulates Mike Yates when he takes the food that was meant for Benton. <laughs> well, can I just say, what? I love reform. I love reformed Yates in Planet of the Spiders. Yeah. Um, and But also, if you want to hear an interesting take on Yates, uh, I just started listening to the co- uh, Nest Cottage yes. stuff that yes. Paul Mars wrote. And I w- I've really been enjoying them taking up that story with the relationship between Yates and Tom Baker's doctor. Um, so you just need to do a whole podcast on Mike Yates. <laughs> That's all. Okay. Well, I mean, you bring up a good point about the whole, like, post, you know, like, they, they actually did a, a character arc with Yates between the Green Death, Death invasion of the dinosaurs and Planet of the Spiders that was very interesting and very different from anything Doctor Who had done before. You know, th- there were some, you know, slight arcish sort of elements, um, you know, in, 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 you know, the Hartnell era, but those were more plot arc elements rather than character arc elements. And with Yates, we get this whole idea of Yates, you know, being mind controlled, then that leaving him susceptible to actual manipulation by people later, and then him having to just sort of like purge it all and like sort of like come back to himself in Planet of Spiders. It's really interesting, and you feel a whole lot better about the character once you get to Planet of Spiders. So yeah, I, I would agree with that, that that makes him a lot more interesting than I think any of his previous stories. Uh, made him like I, I definitely never liked the Joe Yates implication that they're going to be dating you know and I'm glad they never did a whole lot with that yeah. because I don't really feel like that's yeah. an interesting well, couple and, and let's be honest does anyone really believe that Mike Yates um, would be interested in uh, in uh, how do I phrase this in uh, in the ladies the yes fair in sex. the fairer sex does anyone buy that because <laughs> I certainly don't well, I, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 that none of that ever occurred to me in their relationship. Um, but uh, I, I just—he's the least threatening military figure I think I've ever seen. He's so. Um, here's the thing you've got to understand about the British military: is the officer class, uh, at least back in the day, had this op- you know, this very uh, specific image of being privately educated, kind of poncy um, guys. And Mike is the epitome of that. He's kind of the the upper class twit. And, yes. you know, you yeah. watch something like Blackadder and you see Captain Darling. It's the same concept. Yes. Well, I, I, um, I really regret that they didn't, bring back some of those one or the other of you know captain monroe from spearhead mm-hmm. or 
uh, I can't think what the one from um, Invasion. Jimmy Jimmy is his first name, but I can't think what it is in the Invasion. I, I regret they didn't bring back Paul. I forget what his captain was called in the oh, Silurians. Oh, Darrow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, 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 I though they all seem like like they're working class captains, and then you get Mike Yates, who's practically, you know, floating above, above the ground when he's when he's in the show, you know, and and uh, and then he, you know, his last appearance, he's wearing that cute little ascot, uh, so. Yeah, I don't know. It's just maybe it's because the first like Pertwee story I owned on VHS was Day of the Daleks. But I always come back to RHIP Joe. You know, <laughs> like, and it just ooh it makes me so angry at him. <laughs> but frankly, I think Joe had more eyes for Benton than she had for Yates, especially in his diaper. <laughs> Jeez, nice. <laughs> Oh God, um, Mike. Anything to say about hey, Mike? Yeah. <laughs> anything to say about Mike Yates? Yeah, he is not representative of any other Mike. Okay, let's go and go with that. <laughs> now I will agree the redemption in Planet of the Spiders was very, very well earned, and you have come back into good graces of the Mikes. But bro, you are you are dirty. I remember Invasion of the Dinosaurs. You are dirty, sir. So, Yates, Yates is, uh, he's on, he's on shaky ice right now. He's on shaky ice. Mm. All right. Well, let's, uh, cause I, I, we have to do favorite stories and can't take too much time on anyone's story. <laughs> um, so, uh, Mike, let's start with you this time. What is <laughs> your favorite third doctor story? Okay. Look, I just liked how ridiculous it was. I like the Carnival of Monsters. Mm. That's not a bad choice. It, it was just it, how I wasn't really sure like where the story was actually going because we had everything going outside of the capsules with two different alien races trying like, hey, I'm mm. trying to do a trying trying to do entertainment here. Like, what is entertainment? What what what's a smile? Who is, <laughs> who are you? Get, get out of here. Go back to your go back to your universe. You're weird. And then you get uh, everything happening inside uh, of the machine where there here's apparently a lost boat from planet Earth. And here's a dinosaur. It's like, what's going on? And then now we're worrying about viruses and uh, these creatures getting out. It's like, oh, they're escaped. What are we going to do? So I just liked how really out of the world kooky the episode was. Yeah. Well, that's a Robert Holmes, and Robert Holmes is known as, like, one of the great writers of Doctor Who. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, Carnival of Monsters is a really fun story. I mean, uh, it is, there is some societal commentary there, and that's where you get the stuff that's going on outside the scope, um, you know, that they're talking about, sort of, like, the opinions that people have of the working class and whatnot. But, uh, but yeah, that's, that's, that's a pretty good one. And I do like also that that's you know sort of joe's sort of oh it's not her introduction to going off into time and space but in the way the doctor almost treats it like it is where he gets to have that heart to heart with her telling her about how he helped to get the the miniscopes banned and you know talking about you know sort of like the sort of wider field of what he usually does going into time and space so um you know i kind of like it for that you know standpoint also i love it because among other reasons it's where John Pertwee starts wearing his best costume, <laughs> which is that um, 
his regular costume, but he's wearing these kind of uh, knee-high boots, mm. and he looks like a kind of a Victorian explorer. And he, I just, he cuts a great figure in that. Yeah, that's also the story that taught us to, uh, so my brothers and I, after watching that one, because my brothers, even though they never became really fans, we did, when we were young, we all watched it together. Um, that we would, like, we would, we would, you know, put up our fists and be like, Queensberry rules? <laughs> 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 anyway, um, <laughs> anyone else about uh, Carnival of Monsters? Uh, it's a desert island who for me. Mm. It's okay, but it's not It's not my favorite of the Pertwee era. Okay, Miranda. All right, what is your favorite third Doctor story? You know, it's hard because I, I love all of the season seven stories. Mm. I just, they just, all of them were just so good. And uh, I mean, Spearhead from Space, maybe my favorite, just, uh, just, just because I, it's the one I like to rewatch the most. Mm-hmm. Oh, crap. <laughs> uh, well, let's go to you, Anthony. What's your favorite uh, Pertwee All right, story? so I'm going to apologize to Eric ahead of time because I have a feeling I'm about to steal what he may well say. But it's got to be Inferno. Inferno is in my top five stories of all time. Um, mm. It is a wonderful, wonderful story. Very dark, very gritty and it's how to successfully pad out a seven-part story and not make it dull at any point. It twists, it turns, it's got that horror element, it's got your evil versions of the characters. It's just fantastic. Everyone is firing on all cylinders in the cast. Yes, please, all day, every day. Give it to me. And directed by Douglas Camfield. <laughs> The legendary Dougie Camfield, mm. the one and only. Although he had a heart attack on the set, but you know. So some of it's directed by Barry Letts. But, but I mean, the way they, they really ratchet, ratchet up the tension, whether that's Barry or whether that's Dougie, it doesn't matter. It's just done so well. Um, Anthony, you, you sort of did steal it, but uh, mine, but I, I, I mean, I'm willing to let you steal it because Inferno is certainly in the top five greatest stories ever produced by Doctor Who. 100% agree. It is so incredibly good that I'm willing to let you steal it from me. <laughs> you are too kind, sir. Thank you. Uh, um, you're most welcome. Um, you two are turning into a Holmesian double act as I, as I sit here. <laughs> oh, we're, we're, we're new best friends. <laughs> it's like shock eye and the second Doctor here. <laughs> Which one's which? That's, that's the important question. <laughs> I have I have a feeling if we discuss anything else, we're going to completely disagree. But, um, um, but the greatest moment in Inferno for me, and there are so many, but the greatest moment is a brief scene, I think in episode one or two, when the brigadier summons Doctor Who to the top of a an, uh, an oil uh, tank or whatever it is, a silo. And they're standing up there and it is the most disturbing. The, the, the incidental music is creepy as all hell. And the brigadier says, Doctor, I need answers. And it to me, that is just, 
if all Doctor Who could be like that, it would just be sensational all the time. I don't know what it is about it, but it's gritty. It's industrial. Uh, it, it, it's just the very best the series ever produces. So I, I've never seen anything that confirms this, but have you guys seen Chernobyl, the HBO show? No, no. I haven't. So the incidental music in that is, I, I think it's inspired by Inferno. I, mm. At times it's spot on. And then the, the feeling of impending doom through that show, I'd be very surprised if uh, the the producer of Chernobyl had not seen Inferno, honestly. Mm. Um, uh, Camfield uh, famously hated Dudley Simpson. Um <laughs> Uh, because Simpson had told him about all the money he was making on Doctor Who or something. Yeah. And um, so he refused to use him. And and what you get is that incredible Delia Derbyshire electronica, um, the, uh, the Delian mode and blue something in Golden Sands and that sort of thing. And it's just so unsettling, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And, and bleak too, so bleak. And I'm glad he didn't use Dudley for that because it, it wouldn't have been the same with a Dudley score. I agree. Now, see, I thought the highlight of the episode was when the third Doctor asked because they expected Batman at the controls of the target. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, um, but but no, I mean, uh, what's really good about that is even like the guest cast come in and you know are doing such a great job. Like Stallman is mm-hmm. one of like you know one of the great villains right like his whole this whole scientist that's you know just like twisted with this idea that he's going to, to right all these wrongs and is ignoring all the problems you know because of that and sir keith gold you know is such a great character you know with the you know and, and the, the, um you know who later go on to be um uh uh jago um, you know, he's, he's coming in doing that, you know, Petra, you've got, um, you know, um, um, Greg Sutton, you've got all those characters and there's this whole like other story going on around this. And it's so good. Like it's a seven parter that actually feels like it deserves seven parts because you've got the alternate universe stuff going on. You've got all the relationships going on between all the people and, you know, you've got the actual sci-fi story going on. So it's that beyond the parallel universe bit. So I, I don't know. I, I think that Inferno is a really great story i think um uh i love olaf pooley in that he is Mm -hmm. astonishingly good (sighs) yes Um, he is and he's also one of the very few actors who has been in star trek and doctor who and he lived to be like 105 and was also a famous painter yeah he was a renaissance man yeah, I remember hearing somebody say that they got his autograph when he was like 102 or something like that. So, yeah. He said he didn't remember his time on Doctor Who. Though. Like, they asked him about Doctor Who, and he didn't remember. I mean, when you're like 102, and, you know, it happened 40 years ago. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> um, the other thing about Pooley that I think is really great is that his Stallman could so easily be... Uh, just a kind of mad scientist, but he's really, you really want Stallman not to be evil. Like there's clearly something wrong with him. Like he's been screwed over or, you know, people didn't believe him or or whatever his backstory is. Right. Yeah. He's not doing this just to be like, he really thinks he's doing a good thing for the world and he's just ignoring, you know, the warning signs of the problem before he gets tainted by the, by the, by the sludge. I think it's, it's kind of a warning on the dangers of obsession. Mm-hmm. 
you know, he's so fixated on this, rightly or wrongly. And I think, Nathan, you make a good point. He genuinely believes that he's doing something good, but he is so fixated. And to the point where he put he puts the entire world in danger because of it. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting, though. Like, I love the fact that, like, you shift between, like, the different worlds. And it's like, everybody's different. And it's just like, Stallman just has like a different outfit and like no facial hair. It's like, Stallman is like the one fixed point. Between and he, the has, he has groovy glasses yes. in the other universe. <laughs> oh. Eric, uh, why don't you pick, uh, I, I mean, I know Inferno is your actual favorite story, but why don't you pick another favorite? You know, what's your second favorite? Um, well, it, it really is a toss up between uh inferno well anthony i see your inferno and i raise you an ambassadors of death oh <laughs> yeah so we are so on the same page I mean, that's yeah. probably my second favorite partly so wow um, okay and what what inferno lacks i mean other than really creepy incidental music is the astonishing score by dudley simpson <laughs> in the ambassadors of death um and <laughs> Uh, you know, one of the things about Ambassadors that I I actually sort of vaguely sort of regret that we can now see it in color just a little bit, because even though it's beautiful in color, uh, especially episode one and five, I think they're really crisp and good looking. Um, uh, it actually was really wonderful in black and white and very atmospheric. Um, yeah, just as but, a quick aside here, because I said we'd get back to this, but we really don't have much time to talk about it. Um, much in the same way the first two Doctors had episodes junked, um, the third Doctor stories were all recorded in, in color and then copied into black and white. And in a few cases, there are individual episodes that only exist now in black and white. And most of those have been recolorized using a technique that was pioneered because Doctor Who has pioneered all the video restoration techniques. <laughs> only a slight exaggeration. Um, where they're actually able to restore some of the color signal because it was embedded in the black and white since it started as color um so it's better than just like you know colorizing something from scratch uh so anyway sorry the but... other thing i want to jump in nathan very quickly on that same note is when this went out in 1970 color tea was still relatively new in the uk it was still pretty expensive so at the time a lot of people would have watched these stories in black and white anyway so just going to throw that one out there um the uh the other, I mean, among the many, many notable things about Ambassadors is that it's the last story for Doctor Who by the late, great, uh, inimitable David Whitaker. Now, I know that Terrence Dix rewrote rather significant chunks of it, but it still has what I think is kind of the calling card of David Whitaker uh, in its really complicated um, ethical dilemma that sits at the heart of that story. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, uh, it's, it, it really is kind of a throwback to the late Hartnell era, uh, kind of, um, or not late Hartnell era, but the Hartnell era's complicated cerebral thinking stories, um, you know, where you have this, this central debate that's going on between the brigadier and the doctor about uh, alien invasion and how, how do you fight it and what do you do and, and um you know, as it turns out, the guy that's trying to fight off the aliens isn't the brigadier this time around, and he really is a wacko. <laughs> and uh, but for for perfectly acceptable, totally rational reasons, 
Um, and it's just an incredible piece of television. And it's got a few loose ends here and there, but none that really bother me um, I, because it is just an incredible piece of television. I don't know. Are we supposed to think that there are perfectly rational reasons where he just blames all aliens for the one attack on, on you know, that, that happened? I, I, I always thought that this was like a, a definite, you know, showcase of somebody who's just become rampantly xenophobic um, from one misunderstanding. Well, I don't. I mean, the only Xeno, the only aliens that he's worried about are, in fact, the aliens that attacked him. So, it's sort of a moot point, isn't it? But I think it's it's also a bit of social commentary as well. If you think about what was going on at the time, there was this big debate on whether or not Britain should become more integrated with the rest of Europe. And I think the general here uh, was he a general? I forget. But the the, uh, the yes the the general he. You know, his fear of the aliens is kind of like the Brits' fear of the Germans at the time. Mm. You know, they've bitten us one, they're going to come back and get us again. And it's, it's very much a, a kind of um, a reflection of that in British society. Uh, yeah, I, that's a really interesting observation. I had never really thought of it like that before. Um, I tend to think of season seven as being kind of before the arrival of politics and who, as it were, um, even though I know it's not. But, you know, I, I always think of, say, Curse of Peladon being a classic example of, of um, you know. I think, I think before uh, this point and earlier, they were just a bit cleverer about it. Yes, less on the nose. Yeah, uh, they tended to make it a little more subtle. But, I mean, it's just an outstanding story. Um, a shout out also to uh, um, Ralph Cornish, who is played by, uh, I'm I, sorry, I've gone blank on his name. Um, sorry about that. But um, uh, what an incredible actor he is. Everything, every time I see that man in something, I, I find myself drawn to him. Um, he's just incredible. I, I, I'm blanking on his name, but he played uh, Rago in the dominators also uh, but uh, <laughs> what what, what's his, well i know well actually that's not maybe his greatest moment but i mean in in other television series that i've seen uh, i anthony what's his name i can't think of it oh gosh uh hold please <laughs> yeah i'm sorry I know I'm, anthony i'm just impressed you got through talking about a whitaker story without mentioning alchemy there was there wasn't much alchemy in uh, in the ambassadors <laughs> of death uh, Ronald Allen was his name. Yes, Ronald Allen. Thank you. Um, uh, anyway, Ronald Allen is astonishing in that as well. So, okay, so um, Miranda. Okay, Eric picked um, um, Ambassadors of Death. Anthony picked Inferno already as their favorite stories. So we've already got a lot of season seven already out there. If you want to comment on those um, and then talk about yours, that's that's fine because I know you didn't get a chance to. Um, actually, I was just going to go to talking about Inferno, which you all have already done. So <laughs> I don't think there's anything I could add. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, all right. Well, what's another story then? Anything else that you would like to talk about with the uh, with the third Doctor? Any other story? Um, the Peladon ones were great fun. I mm. just I'd like those. <laughs> it's been a while since I've seen them, so I can't really talk about them in depth. But I just want to give them a shout out. Uh, yeah, I like that because it's it's one of the rare cases where we see the Doctor actually return to a setting, um, you know, more mm -hmm. than just seeing a particular alien species again. Like, we come back to Peloton 50 years later, and we get to sort of, 
you know, deal with the ramifications of what's been going on since the last time the doctor visited. And I really like that, you know, aspect to it. I mean, I like the first one anyway, because I feel like that's, that's an interesting, like, story. Like, you know, a lot of times people say, well, I don't like these stories, these science fiction stories where you get into the politics of everything. But I actually kind of like all the delegates and all the, you know, sort of subterfuges going on and everything. But then also having that as a sort of a series where we come back to Peladin and have to deal with some of the consequences of, of what happened the first time, I kind of like um, that also. I think it's sad yeah. that we were denied a third Peladon story with Tom Baker and Sarah in season 13. Wouldn't that have been awesome instead of Android Invasion? More <laughs> instead of Planet of Wretched Evil. <laughs> More Alpha Centauri. That's what we need. Yeah. I can't wait till our Tom Baker one. <laughs> well, well we, you obviously need more Alpha Centauri. Oh, don't we all? Oh, yeah. <laughs> My my wife actually uh, cosplayed as Alpha Centauri at Chicago TARDIS. Oh my goodness! Two or three years ago, it was amazing. Like that's yeah. so one of my favorite costumes I've ever seen at a con. I oh gosh, so good. That's outstanding. Yeah, the eye actually blinked. Yeah, she could control all the arms, and the eye blinked. Wow. <laughs> and, and so at the at the at the masquerade, she did the chicken dance as Alpha Centauri. <laughs> I cosplay as Alpha Centauri at home. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going there. <laughs> you know, Eric, you once said something to me that is stuck with me all these years, 20 years uh -oh. later. <laughs> is it is it repeatable on air? <laughs> yeah, it's repeatable on air. But it just you just brought it back to me with that statement. I come over to your house and you're like, you know, today when I was in the shower, I was thinking about cybernization. <laughs> I don't need to know anymore, Eric. <laughs> what was what was I thinking about? I, cy being cybernized, you know, turning oh, into yeah, a cyber. Oh yeah, that's that's right, yeah. Like... <laughs> uh, doesn't everybody think about that? Yeah. In the <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's so many good stories with the Third Doctor's era. Um, Is you this know, the I... part in the podcast where we talk about how awful? Colony of Colony in Space is. Uh, all right, all right, all right. I didn't get to pick my favorite, okay? So let me give my favorite. And my favorite, since Inferno was already taken, is Frontier in Space. And um, that is like a masterclass story in world building. Um, I love everything about the Draconians. I love the... And this also comes from the whole idea of this, this period of the show when we have, you know, these creators sort of sparking off each other is that not only do you get like different sides that all have their own motivations and you don't have the sort of black and white, well, they're the monster, so they're evil and all of that, but you actually have this sort of well-fleshed out vision of the future and about what's going to happen with Earth and even like past, you know, like different time periods and it all sort of fits into a narrative that actually makes logical sense. And... I love the, you know, the whole aesthetic of the Draconians. I love the fact that they have, you know, like a, like a culture and a background there. Um, you know, somebody said, like, it's a, you know, described Frontier in Space as it's a trip around the galaxy in a series of cells. And mm -hmm. it's kind of like that. But because of that, there's so much world building going on in this story, even though it is like a lot of just jail cells. And it's the prototype for Babylon 5. 
You know, yeah, I knew see. you were going to get that one in there. Yeah, it's the prototype for Babylon 5. Straczynski said that he loved Doctor Who, and there's way too much similarities between the Draconian Earth War and the Earthman Bari War. It's it's the same thing, people. Um, and, <laughs> <laughs> and, and so it's great on that standpoint, too. But And then Delgado gives, you know, what may be his best performance in his final outing, which, of course, nobody knew at the time was going to be his final outing. And it's only barred by the fact that that final scene wasn't filmed correctly and you have that awful jump cut you know where like suddenly like the master's just gone and it's sort of like unclear what exactly happened but other than that like the whole episode is fantastic i can watch it over and over again we already talked about how for joe's character it's a great one i i, I love that one yeah the sad thing is that they didn't put the master in uh planet of the daleks mm -hmm. that would have been awesome and, you know, follow it through to the end. Yeah, but I'm not sure what he would have done in Planet of the Dawn. <laughs> well, I don't know either, but they could have rewritten it, so he could have done something. Yeah. Well, oh, that's the other thing I want to say. The first time I saw Frontier in space, I was shocked when the Daleks show up towards the end. That was one of the best, like, surprises in Doctor Who history for me as a kid because there's no of the Daleks in the title right like, there's no there's no <laughs> hint that the Daleks are in this one and suddenly the Daleks show up when they're on this planet and it's like holy crap you know <laughs> like so that that's also I have some fond memories of, of that sort of shock you know watching the story oh man I guess nobody else likes Frontier in Space oh sorry was it time to talk mm -hmm. it's okay <laughs> <laughs> I would have preferred an actual tour of the galaxy, not in cells. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I like it, but it's it's not a favorite. BBC budgets, Anthony. BBC budgets. Uh, yeah. This was an era <laughs> of hyperinflation. They tended to run out of money towards the end of... <laughs> it actually wasn't towards the end of the season. It was kind of smack dab in the season, middle. So. <laughs> yes. Um, I don't know. Uh, Miranda, any thoughts on Frontier in Space? Um, it was okay. I, I don't have strong feelings about it one way or another, honestly. Mike? Uh, ditto to her. Okay. All right, Eric, you can get off your chest about Colony in Space now, which I actually don't think is as bad as you think it is. Well, you're completely wrong. It is. First of all, first of all, you have Bernard K. So you cannot say that any story is the worst that has Bernard K. in it, okay? I agree with you. It <laughs> is. It, he does lift it up the tiny bit that it is lifted, but it is truly a diabolical creation. And it is truly the worst example of what everybody thinks 1970s British sci-fi looks like. It's gray and dingy and cold looking, and there's men with long hair and fake beards running around in a clay pit somewhere. Um, you know, in weird tabard-like clothing, and then a bunch of scruffy settlers with crappy, that crappy robot miner thing with the with the fake lizard hands, and when they show the lizard hand robot before we discover it's a robot, they use a fake, you know, they use iguana back projection. It's just dismal, and even when Roger Delgado shows up 
it still doesn't help it. Well, I do like the way that the master shows up in the middle of the story rather than in the beginning. And I think that that was, you know, a better usage of the master having him be a surprise, you know, villain that shows up rather than knowing from the beginning. Um, but all right, let me let me pitch this to you. Does this make the story better? John Ringham is actually Clitoxel. <laughs> No, it doesn't help at all. I, I know. I mean, there's so many. There's actually good actors in it that are all badly wasted. Um, I mean, John, why is John Ringham in that? He, he's, he's awful. The character is awful. Um, just everybody's awful except for Bernard Kay. He's the only one that comes out of that even slightly, uh, you know, un un whatever on whatever okay I, I think on the bernard k note though we're gonna have to end this one i will say since this is his last uh <laughs> you know appearance on who that i don't know if we brought him up in any of the previous ones but he is sort of like an unsung hero of doctor who he was always uh he played several different characters he was um uh tyler and um in, in the Dalek Invasion of Earth. He was Saladin, the Crusade. Um, he, he always was so good at every role that he did, very diverse roles, almost always the most interesting person on the screen when he was there. Um, you know, uh, really great actor and, you know, just, and he was there in the show for like its first 10 years, just doing different parts, you know, and different stories. And so, um, yeah, just thought I'd throw that in there since, uh, you know, you mentioned Colony in Space. Well, he's the only good thing about it. <laughs> <sighs> I'm not sure that's true, but yeah, it, it's a pretty bad story. But I like to find good things to say about every story. So. <laughs> well, Bernard K was good in it. There, yes. I said something nice. Yeah. All right. So, uh, so yeah, let's say our goodbyes and let people know where they can find us online or if they can find us online. Eric, why don't you say goodbye and let people know uh, if they can find you online. Well, goodbye, everybody. It's been nice talking. Uh, I, I really have no online identity, and I'm really happy about that. So uh, see you on the next podcast. All right. <laughs> Okay. All right, Miranda, why don't you say your goodbye and let people know if there's, uh, you know, if they can find you online or if there's anything you want to plug. Um, there is nah, nothing, nothing I need to plug. I don't really have an online presence that I want public. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's been great fun talking with you guys and sorry about my, my technical issues, but um, hope, hopefully next time will be better. <laughs> I enjoyed being on the show. <laughs> yeah, no, it was great having you on. And also, of course, Eric, um, it was great having you on as well. And uh, Mike, why don't you say goodbye and let people know where they can find you. Goodbye, Aaron Nets. And you can, of course, find me over on Twitter at ThisIsTrex. And for any gaming fun stuff, head over to twitch.tv slash trexlight. All right. And Anthony, why don't you say goodbye and let people know where they can find you? All right. Uh, thank you for having me again. You can find me on um, Watchers in the Fourth Dimension, talking about Doctor Who. I uh, mentioned that earlier. You can also find me on a podcast called Sweet Radu's Musically Inclined, where we discuss heavy metal. Interesting. Uh, we've been doing the history of Iron Maiden for the last uh, year or so, which has been great fun. Um, beyond that, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at, at Englishman in ATL. Um, but beyond that, thank you once again for having me on the show. It's been a pleasure, and uh, I'll talk to you all next time. Hey, wait a minute. We can't go yet because no one has yet said that we need to 
reverse the polarity of the neutron flow. Oh. Oh. Well, now someone has. Yeah. <laughs> which which John Pertree famously liked because he could say it to uh, to the tune where he could say reverse the polarity of the neutron flow. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, Anthony and Mike and again Eric and Miranda, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank Bye. you. Good luck, thank man. You. And that's it for our third Doctor episode. We hope that you liked it, and we hope that you like this whole series that we're doing on all the Doctors and Doctor Who, and you can let us know in a variety of ways. One way is to email us at everything at 42cast.com. You can go to our Facebook at facebook.com slash 42cast. You can tweet to us or go on Instagram and talk to us at 42cast. Or you can visit our website at 42cast.com and leave a message on any of the episodes, including this one. You can also leave us reviews on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts. The reviews on Apple Podcasts are the most helpful because they help promote the show. The more reviews that we have, the more that we're likely to show up on searches with Apple. So it's helpful to me. It's helpful to the show. If you like the show, help us out. (laughs) But uh, beyond that, definitely want to let everybody know about the ESO Patreon. It's a way of supporting all the shows on the network. You get access to early episodes of podcasts, some exclusive episodes of podcasts, and even a whole exclusive podcast just for the ESO network if you purchase a a certain tier. So again, patreon.com slash ESO network. If you have some money you would like to contribute, we would definitely appreciate it. Because of the topic on this one, I do want to plug time streams because it is where Juliet and I are watching through all of Doctor Who from the beginning, talking about all our thoughts. We're still on the first Doctor as of the time of this recording, but eventually we'll get to the third Doctor. We'll talk about all those great adventures, too. So definitely check that out. It's called Time Streams. And also Legendary Forces is coming. I know that I kind of promised it a bit early. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming before the end of the summer. If I have to just take a few days off of work just to get it cranked out, it is coming before the end of the summer. So whatever the equinox is in the fall, like September 20th or something, it's definitely coming out before that. And I'm hoping much, much earlier before that. But I will make sure that happens. But yes, Legendary Forces is where myself and Joe Heath, Ashley Pauls, Juliet Vincent again, and also Corinne Vitek, we are going through all of Star Wars fictional media from the beginning. And talking through it, you know, what it adds to the universe. And even, you know, even though all most of that stuff isn't considered canon anymore by Disney, is it worth your time to check that out? So definitely look for Legendary Forces coming out later this year before the end of the summer. (laughs) All right. So, yeah, in con news, uh, you know, uh, I recorded a virtual con about Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which, you know, if you know anything about that and you know the name of the show, you know, there's a connection. So yeah, definitely, if you purchase the Dragon Con virtual membership, check that out. Or if you purchase the full membership, I think you're going to have access to all the virtual content too, so check that out. And yeah, I mean, I don't recall anymore which ones I've said and which ones I haven't, but we at the 42Cast are recording a Howard the Duck panel for the 35th anniversary, so you can check that out also. That one will actually be on YouTube that will release sometime during Dragon Con with the American Sci-Fi Classics track. So you can check that out. Ryan had his way. Let's put it that way. So if you follow this show, you know that Ryan is a, is a very big fan of Howard the Duck. So 
I couldn't really, I put a lot of ideas out there and I really didn't get a lot of hits on ideas other than there were like seven or eight people that were like, oh, Howard the Duck sounds good. So it's like, all right, I guess that's the one we're doing. Let's not talk about Terminator or <laughs> Sailor Moon or any of those other things that I thought were much bigger things that people would want to talk about. We'll talk about Howard the Duck. So that's how that happened. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, um, beyond that, yeah, still planning on going to Chicago TARDIS in person this year. And not too much uh, other than that. Wish I had more to report, more to talk about, whatever. But some months, there's just not a whole lot going on. So, with all that being said, I actually don't know what the next episode's going to be. I know that's crazy. I always let you guys know, put in my little joke about who's not going to be with us or who is going to be with us trying to get an interview lined up but i don't know that for sure so i'm not going to promise something that i can't deliver and if not i'll have to come up with something else to pull from the backlog to play in its place so just yeah watch this space but yeah that's it for the episode join us next week and until then this is nathan signing off You have been listening to the 42 cast copyright 2021 got a question for the ultimate answer contact us at everything at 42 cast.com theme music is sharper swords by brandon ellis check out more of his work at www.cityfires.com the 42 cast is a proud member of the eso network has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.